Sam definitely went. This is Freddie Williams. This is Ian Sattler, Senior Story Editor at DCU. Hi, this is Mundo DeFilippis. Thanks, Christina Lear. Hi, this is Kevin Vandal. Hi, this is Libra Mayo. Hi, this is Brian Ezrelli. Hi, this is Matt Wagner, author of Batman and the Monster Mount and Batman and the Mad Month. Hey, this is Mike Martz, Batman Group Editor. Hey, this is Ethan Van Skybro. My name is Neil Adams. This is Paul Dini. This is Robert Greenberger. This is Jerry Robinson. Hey, this is uh, Will Fertaccio. This is Adam Beechin, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 93. I'm your host, Dustin, and today we have with us... Hi, this is Donovan. I am Joe. And this is Stella. And we are bringing you the comic book news and comic book reviews from the weeks of May 13th through June 2nd. Lots of stuff to cover, a total of 10 books to cover, including a book that we normally don't cover, All-Star Western, and some new books. Well, new new books, including Batman Incorporated, but also the annual for Batman this year as well. Lots of news, lots of books, so let's just get right into everything that we have. Uh, let's start off with comic news. Batmite presents... Batman's Strangest Cases! Alright, first up, on May 16th, uh, Birds of Prey writer Dwayne Swarzynski spoke with Comic Resources about the Birds of Prey future and how he is going to be uh, writing... Uh, well, well, the stories he's going to be writing coming up and kind of the story elements that he's brought up in uh, past and how it's going to be working with Travel Foreman. Uh, so for this interview, I will read for Comic Book Resources, and Donovan will read for Dwayne Swarzynski. In the book, you've wrapped up Choke, and going out of Night of Owls, we have Poison Ivy heading to the Amazon, as well as the agency from issue number 8 trying to literally burn Black Canary. While these current issues have been Black Canary heavy, it seems the next arc is Poison Ivy heavy. Will you be delving more into Ivy's backstory, wrapping up the Kurt and Dinah threads? Well, there is a major Poison Ivy story coming right after the Night of Owls-based issue in issue 9. The Kurt and Dinah stuff, there will be more track laid for that train, but we won't. But that won't really reach its peak until a few issues down the road. This is a Poison, poison Ivy-centric storyline, as you'll see. One of the biggest themes in the book is trust, and with the Choke storyline, we've seen this team's trust erode as Katana and Ivy are becoming murdering loose cannons and Black Canary and Starling's relationship is more and more strained. At this point, what keeps the birds running? I'd say it's Black Canary's moral center. I think she's had things she's sorry about, things she wishes had gone differently, but at her core she wants to help. She wants to do good in the world, that's always guided her. She's had the setback, which we'll learn about, which we'll learn more about, and she's had this big tragedy in her life, but she's still determined to do good. And when someone's determined to be a force of good in the world, even when they have every temptation to turn the other side, to be tempted by other forces, it's a fun character to follow. I think she is the guiding force for the birds. I guess the big question is, who can, she, who can she trust in the coming months to support her or go along with that mission of doing good? Everyone has dirty laundry. It isn't the saints of prey for a good reason. Then let's talk about the actual story in the next arc. What can you tell us about the plot and the team moving forward? At the end of their encounter with the Talons from the 1840s, Poison Ivy saves the day. She's the only one strong enough to pull this talent into a meat locker in a train car and really neutralize him. We learn early on that Black Canary promised Poison Ivy if anything went wrong, she would take her to the Amazon at the heart of the green and help her re- rejuvenate. That's a pivotal thing, that promise. That's Black Canary's M.O. She'll honor her promises. She wants to do good, but that, but that may not be the best thing for the team coming into next issue. 
The trust thing is big. That's a big thing, for me at least, of who can you trust. How far can you trust them? It's not as easy as Poison Ivy is a mustache twirling bad guy. That's not the case at all. I think she has good reasons for what she does. She's not being deceitful necessarily, but I think she's sort of casting the team in her own image, and it's at odds with how Black Canary sees the team, as we'll see playing out. Alright, so that's the end of that interview. Um, the interesting thing about this is that clearly there is a lot of trust issues within the Birds of Prey. Um, and I think this Poison Ivy story is actually going to delve a little bit more into that with the fact that we're going to be delving into the the fact that Poison Ivy is seeing the team so differently than the way Black Canary is seeing the team. I'm anxious to see uh, where the story gets back on I guess it back on track with the Poison Ivy storyline and the Black Canary storyline. Um, I'll talk about a bit more in my review, but like the the last two issues of Birds of Prey have been kind of haphazard. You know, when they really have a good, interesting, you know, story going, they kind of, kind of, you know, go sideways for the Night of Owls or for some fight with uh, Yakuza Samurai uh, uh, Sumo guy. And I kind of wanted to get back to where it was going with. So um, I'm interested to see where this title is going and not for it kowtowing to what DC wants, essentially. I'm definitely looking forward to seeing more Poison Ivy in the next arc. But uh, that was a pretty big spoiler in that, considering it was released on the day that the issue was released. That last paragraph kind of sums up the issue entirely. But I, I wholeheartedly agree with Donovan that it's just going to be great to get back to the original storyline away from sort of these distractions that we've gotten to. And in kind of getting a look at Poison Ivy, I hope we also learn more about um, how she fits into this current DC universe. And then, of course, we have this shady man that we saw, I believe, in issue number three. Who is this guy? What was he giving her? What was in that briefcase? That sort of thing. And at the end of this, how is, it, how is she going to fit in with the Birds of Prey? I wonder if all of these things will um, be answered. All right, so moving right along, on May 17th, it was announced... Or, well, it wasn't announced... On May 17th, an interview was done over at Comic Book Resources with Damon Lindolf, who is one of the creators of the TV series Lost. Uh, he's, as we talked about uh, around C2E2, he has been announced that he'll be working with Jeff Lamar on uh, for, for a 10-page story that will be featured in the new Batman digital series, digital first series, entitled Nothing But Batman. So for this interview, I'll read for Comic Book Resources, and Joe will read for Damon Lindolf. Realizing it's only 10 pages, what can you share with us about your story? All I can say is that there were two things that we both agreed upon that would make this story really interesting. The first was that the story had to, in some way, reference the origin story. That's what I wanted to do with my Superman story too, which was like, here's a story that everybody knows. And it doesn't matter if you've ever picked up a comic book in your life, or you've read every single title. That's the common language that we all speak. We all say, buenos dias? It's not a retelling of the origin story in any way, shape, any way, shape or form, but it scrapes the surface of that. The second was to set this thing at a point early in Batman's career, where he's still working out the kinks, as it were. One of the things that I really like about Jeff's writing, that not a lot of people are doing right now in the industry, is that it's funny. It's fun. It's not funny like a wink outside the panel where it's broad humour. There is just a sense of amusement about everything. There is, something about the, there is something about his art, too, that I just find doesn't take itself too seriously, but at the same time deals with some very serious subject matter, both in tone and the time in his life. The idea of doing a Batman, 
the idea of doing a Batman f***s up story was alluring to both of us. We haven't seen a lot of those. Any tease about who Batman is up against? No, but what I can say is that who he's up against is the whole point of the story. Alright, so that's the end of that interview. This series is going to be coming out this month in June. Um, so if you are getting digital comics or you're not getting digital comics, just be on the lookout for a bunch of uh, one-off stories by a bunch of different creators, including Damon Lindolf and Jeff Lamar. Uh, I've really been liking Jeff Lamar's work in everything that he's doing at the moment. Uh, his art's not exactly my cup of tea, but I have been picking up a few of the Sweet Tooth trades, so I'll probably be checking this out. It looks like it might be some fun. All right, so next up, the weekend of May 19th through the 20th was Kapow Comic Con, and that was in London, and Joe was actually there, so Joe's going to tell us about everything that happened at Kapow. Basically, uh, there were only two DC panels, but the first one was largely talking about the Watchmen, so nothing really Batman-related in that. So yeah, there wasn't much in the first panel on Saturday, but uh, at the end of the day, there were the Stan Lee Awards. Um, don't worry if you haven't heard of them. I never had. But yeah, who is he? <laughs> uh, there are ten awards, and out of those ten, DC won seven of them, and uh, five of those are comic-related. So the best comic series went to Detective Comics Volume 1 for Scott Snyder's run. Best writer went to Scott Snyder. Best comic hero went to Batman. Best publisher went to DC. And Man or Woman of the Year went to Scott Snyder. So... Congratulations to him. And then on the second day, there was the DC New 52 panel. We got only a little bit more Batman-related news. It was basically previews of the the second wave. There were hints that it, the second wave is not going to be the only new wave in the DC 52. Dan DiDio said he wants to keep it 52, despite many contradictions already. But, uh, mm. there, you know, there's potential for a third or fourth wave. <laughs> Uh, you've probably heard it already but someone asked a question about the representation of gay characters in the DC Universe and Dan DiDio said that a new character will be, or an established character will be reinvented as a a prominent gay character and that pretty much sums up Kapow Comic Con, there wasn't all that much news because it's obviously a small convention in England. It's not that small and the fact that DC went makes it, you know, sh- it shows that it's important because DC doesn't go to all the Wizard World conventions anymore, but they sure go to that. And there's another one, I believe, in Barcelona that they go to. So there's other conventions that they, they go to that they respect a lot more so than, for instance, Wizard World, which is why we stopped going to Wizard World. But anyway. I, def- I definitely respect them for, or appreciate them coming. It's obviously a long way. <laughs> all right, so moving right along. May 21st, we had an interview that was posted up in IGN uh, with Derek Friedolfs, who's writing Batman Arkham City Endgame, which is the new digital series related to Batman Arkham City, which leads up to the Harley Quinn Revenge uh, DLC pack for the video game. I'm not going to actually go over the interview, I just want to let those you who are reading the comic to know that there's an interview posted on the website, because... Um, it really this this comic as much as it is a comic and it does deal with Batman. Um, this really deals a lot more with the game than it does the comics, and that's part of the reason why we're not going to cover. It. Just like we don't mess, we don't we didn't used to cover Batman Brave and the Bold because it dealt with the TV show and not the comics. 
there's so many other things that we cover with the comics that uh, it's not really something. But there is an interview up there. You can check that out on the website. He specifically talks about what's coming up with the series, uh, with this entire new storyline leading up to Harley Quinn's Revenge. Alright, so next up on May 25th, uh, Chip Kidd talks with Comic Book Resources about his upcoming uh, book, Batman Death by Design, which is actually already released. Again, I'm not going to cover this interview because there's a lot of uh, news here that really relates to the book, which is already out. You can check out that um, on the website if you're interested in that. As I said in the last podcast, we're not going to cover Death by Design on the comic podcast. We're going to have a special in August related to all of the graphic novels that came out over the past year. Um, So at that point in time, we will cover Death by Design. Alright, so then, moving into our last bit of news, on May 31st, Judd Winnick talked with Comic Book Resources about his work on Catwoman and Batwing. For this interview, I'll read for Comic Book Resources, and Stella will read for Judd Winnick. Judd, in Catwoman, Selina seems to be turning over a new leaf, getting upset about women being kidnapped off the street and wanting to do something about it. Does the specific targeting of women strike a chord in Selina that someone menacing other people would not? Yes, I think this is all about dipping our toe in the water of Selena, not becoming a hero, but embracing that aspect of the anti-hero a little more than we have. It, it, is, it is a slow build. She is still a thief. She is still going to be a thief even if and when we start embracing this more. This is not going to change. In my opinion, we see a little of it when she decided not to let Penguin get murdered. He is a bad guy who does bad things, but she thought it was just wrong. You can't walk away from the guy who's going to get killed. I think anyone reading knows she has a moral center, but we are going to start addressing her having a sense of responsibility. That if there are things she can do, maybe she will. She is not necessarily seeking it out, but things come into her scope that she can't help but take an interest in. Without giving away too much, what can you tell us about the villain Dollhouse and how does she tie into those crazy looking flappers on the cover of issue number 12? Second question first. The crazy flappers are the literal dollhouse that Dollhouse lives in. You get more about what is going on there when you actually see what the dollhouse is. Dollhouse is not only Dollhouse's name, but also the vocation. Dollhouse lives in a self-made, nearly living dollhouse. So the character is creepy as hell, and when you see what the character does, it's going to be even more so. As far as I can tell about the character, it is someone who is quite formidable. As we get into the identity, it is, as you will see, someone undoubtedly creepy. I wanted to create someone who would really stir up the crap with Selena, but not 100% insane. Someone who has a method to their madness. That's how I usually like doing villains. In this case, there are reasons that they're doing this, and even a bit of history. That will keep going up through issue 12, which is the big finale with Catwoman and Dollhouse. Turning to your other series, while Batwing appeared in Gotham for Night of Owls, the next issues will see him operating on an international level and teaming up with Nightwing and the Justice League International. Did you talk a lot to Kyle Higgins and Dan Jurgens about their characters? No. In this case, we're doing it through editorial. This isn't a crossover so much as it is just using the characters. I know Kyle a little bit, mostly through Scott Snyder, so through editorial we asked if it was cool. But it goes to a larger issue tact we're taking at DC. 
We're trying to be better and paying attention to continuity, but at the same time not being so slavish to it, we're not producing story. There are different opinions on that even in the room as far as DC goes. You can't use Nightwing in those issues because he'll be in Austin, Texas that month. So what? He'll spend two days there doing what he's got to do. Readers understand that. This has been a debate that's gone on for as long as I've been in comics. There are editors that wouldn't let characters get touched in any way because something is going on in their comic. That said, we're not going to ignore the continuity of what's going on. Right now, Nightwing has a prickly relationship with Batman. We're not going to have any chummy moments with them. They're in sort of a snit, so we acknowledge that. But the idea we can't have Nightwing go to China is crazy. We want Batwing to be a part of the Bat family. We knew he needed a hand. Batman is not at his beck and call, but Nightwing was more than willing to help. We want to feel the fluidity of the DC Universe and get other characters in there. At the same time, we are conscious of what the other books are doing. So that's the how we make the sausage aspect. As far as doing it, we spent a good eight issues in Africa telling the long-form story of Kingdom and Massacre. Now I want to tell a shorter story and make it as superhero-y as possible. The tenor and the tone of the book is the same, but let's switch it up a little bit. That included involving everyone from Nightwing to Batman and Robin to the JLI. We're introducing new supervillains, high stakes, and a larger scale, globe-trotting Batwing. Batman of Africa and Soldier of Batman Incorporated. While the Justice League International are in the book with issue number 12, has the cancellation of Justice League International affected the story you're telling at all? Or is it what you're doing unaffected as it is specific to your book? The script was written before the announcement. Even though the book is being cancelled, I don't think the JLI is being disbanded so much as we're not publishing a book about it. I can't tell you how it's being wrapped up. Y'all would just have to read the JLI, JLI title. In Batwing, we will leap in as a team, and Batwing as a member. Alright, so that's the end of that interview. I have to say, as crazy and, quite honestly, stupid as it sounds, this dollhouse character appearing in Catwoman, I'm actually looking forward to it. Batwing, I've kind of given up on... <laughs> That's all I have. Who was the character in, in uh, the first detective arc with a face? The Dollmaker. Dollmaker, yes. Okay, so there's Dollhouse and Dollmaker. Yep. Just wait for Dollman. Oh, boy. Yeah. And then they'll all come together to form a team created by Tony Daniel. <laughs> yeah, okay, like, like opposite of Dustin, I'm not looking forward to this. So, uh, I mean, Batwing, I am... I'm not really excited about it. I mean, you know, I'm not opposed to it because Batwing's been a fairly solid book. But at the same time, it's not been all that excellent either. So it's like whatever happens, happens. Uh, it's nice to know that Catwoman isn't happy about women being kidnapped by men who want to potentially rape them or kill them or whatever. And uh, as for Batwing, I'm looking forward to this next arc. I guess having a more superhero feel, but the fact that there are so many other characters involved is probably going to take away from. The fact that it's Batwing and it's probably going to be supported by them more than it being a Batwing title. I sort of had an issue from the beginning with uh, the stupidity, I think, of Catwoman. And I feel like the Selina that we all know and love is a really smart character. And she does have this moral center. And yes, she's a thief, but she does good things as well. And so I'm excited to see her get back to that, and I hope that Winnick does a good job. Um, I almost wanted to start laughing when he talked about that whole continuity thing about, you know, well, if this character is doing this, because we talk about that, and it is sort of vexing when someone is someplace, and then, oh, look, he's actually over here, and it doesn't really make sense, but it's, it's easier to say throw that out the window 
rather than actually do it. But um, Nightwing with Batwing, that should be an interesting team-up. We've only seen a little bit of it in, I don't know what Batwing issue that was, at the end of the Massacre arc. But they weren't really teamed up, so it'll be interesting to see him with a different member of the Bat family. But I guess we'll just have to wait and see. And I actually do have something to say about Batwing. I didn't want to make it seem like I don't have anything to say about Batwing. The thing is, Batwing, as we'll talk about, Batman is in Batman Incorporated. He appears in Batman Incorporated number one. He is currently a member of the Justice League International, which makes sense because he's a character from Africa, which is not America. Um, but here's the thing I can't understand. Why is Batwing, the main series, dealing with everything involving these other characters? Yes, Batwing is a soldier of Batman Incorporated. Yes, he is a member of Justice League International. But why is it that the Batwing series is touching on that? Those are things to be touched on in Batman Incorporated or Justice League International, not Batwing. You don't have Batman teaming up with the Justice League every issue of Batman. You have Batman doing Batman things. And to me, it just seems like, well... The idea is that we want this character to be an international hero, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to have him go international and do the same thing that he does in every other book that he appears in. To me, that's just, that's lazy. That's 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 me. And the other thing that I find interesting is that he refers to this Justice League International thing popping up. And when they ask, oh, well, hey, Nightwing is appearing in the book and Justice League International appears in the book. Uh, have you talked to Kyle Higgins or Dan Jurgens? <laughs> you know, the people who are writing these characters, who have been writing these characters since the beginning of the New 52? His answer is, no, I just deal <laughs> with edit- I just deal with editorial. Editorial, yeah. That's, 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 to me, it just seems as if he doesn't care enough to talk to these other writers and say, hey, you know what, I plan on using the characters that you've been using and writing since last September, or probably even before that, but since the, that cool? the, new, the new 52 started, but hey, I just want to make sure that, I want to run this by you to make sure it's not going to jeopardize anything that you might have planned for the next 12 months, because some of you plan out that far. That's Jed winning for you. I mean, I don't mean to sound like a harper. A I know sounded weird. <laughs> I don't want to sound like a person who harps all the time, but it just, to me, that just seems like a lazy writer. We, we hear all the time people talking about how working with Scott Snyder or working with Kyle Higgins or even in some facets working with Gail Simone, you know, they, they, they've talked to each other. Mm-hmm. They, have this, they have this conversation between them so that the stuff flows. Does anybody think to themselves, hey, did anybody notice that all of the books that are doing extremely well in sales are... Or I should say at least within the top 30 out of the Batman books are the books that talk to each other yeah. Except the, with the exception of Detective Comics with Tony Daniel I still can't figure that one out but, yeah. but I mean for the most part these writers they I mean I, I follow all these writers on Twitter and they all the time are talking to each other referencing each other talking you know shooting things back and forth between each other, each other and that's just what we're seeing that's not even the direct messages or emails or anything like that so the fact that these people are getting along with each other and and interacting with each other on a you know normal daily basis compared to you know this where oh no sorry I don't talk to these people I just talk to editorial and they make sure it works even though we could have completely different editorial teams 
I think that's, yeah, completely, if I can jump in on that point. Yeah. Uh, I, I definitely agree with that, and I think it really shows in a lot of these Night of the Owls books because, you know, the ones that we've seen that have been really great, I think, are the ones that there has been communication. And then these past few weeks, we've sort of seen that drop, and, and I wonder if there's been a lack of communication in those books because they aren't as good. But Batgirl was actually, you know, I thought, wow, that's one of the best Batgirls that there's been, and perhaps it is because there was some some sharing between uh, Simone and Snyder. I would say, though, that Judd Winnick's Night of Owls books have been the ones which have fully crossed over the most with the, with the other times. And we'll talk about that a little bit more, because I have, a, I have an opinion on that as well. Mm. But anyway, so that is all the comic news. We do have, like I said, ten books to cover, so we're going to start off with the comic book reviews, and we're going to begin with Batwoman number nine. Where have you been? We were supposed to meet here over two hours ago. Darling, I don't have to answer to you. I'm Batman. Did he just call you Darling? Batwoman number nine, co-written by J.H. Williams III and W. Hayden Blackman, with art by Trevor McCarthy. Once again, the issue opens up with Batwoman's story in the present, and despite taking hits from both Soon and Batwoman, Falcon is gaining the upper hand in their battle. That is until Soon drops a shadow bomb, and the two heroes disappear into the darkness. Jacob's story, one week ago. Bet flatlines, to which Jacob has a violently emotional response, in which he yells such things as, Fight, damn you! Fight! as the hospital staff attempt to revive her. Marrow's story, two weeks ago. Marrow is at the Gotham Harbour with Killer Croc and some gang members, where we see her summon the Weeping Woman for the first time. Maggie's story, three nights ago. Maggie is on board Falcon's ship, where she seems to have lost Kate, but then finds her as Kate comes, apparently, back from the toilet, alongside Soon wearing a mask. Just at that moment, Maggie gets a text from Bullock, saying there's been another kidnapping. The couple spend a moment to kiss each other goodbye before parting. Chase's story, four days ago. Chase, Batwoman and Soon are scouting out Falcon's base, and work out the best shot they have gaining access is via Falcon's yacht, to which Kate just so happens to have tickets. Batwoman... Batwoman is unhappy about having to appear maskless in front of Soon, but is once again beat down by Chase. Kate's story, three nights to go. We see what really happened with Kate and Soon on the boat as they search through, Fal- as they search through Falcon's room for blueprints or maps. Batwoman's story, now. Soon and Batwoman are in the dark when they are jumped by Falcon. Falcon slashes Soon across the stomach, but Batwoman retaliates by jamming by jamming an explosive arrow into Falcon's eye, blinding him. Batwoman goes to help up soon, who says, You saved me, before kissing Batwoman on the lips, much to Kate's surprise. Next, hidden faces revealed. Chipper. Alright, Batwoman number nine. This was, uh, again, in that same story pattern with the different character stories, and they somehow all inter- intertwine to create the overall story. Um, this soon character... Okay... I'm just going to say this out front because I'm, I'm sure it's going to come across to some people as... as uh, I don't even know. I can't even think of a word to describe this. But how is it that a character who is portrayed as a lesbian comes across all these different characters that are also lesbian, but we don't see any of these other lesbian characters in any other series? Uh, all two of I don't, them. <laughs> I, I don't get it. I, I mean, yes, it is all two of them, but I mean, I just don't get it. I, I don't understand why, for some reason... They're all, all the 
the lesbian characters somehow have flocked to the Batwoman series and they don't appear anywhere else in the DC universe. Okay, so as as probably cold-hearted as that sounds, that being said, um, I did see it come in with this whole soon thing. Um, I I saw the whole she was going to make a move on Batwoman. It really wasn't that, you know, far-fetched. It's obviously going to present some problems between uh, Kate and Maggie somehow. Even though, you know, Batwoman and Kate are two different identities, it's still going to come out because Sue knows what uh, Kate looks like without her mask. Um, I do think it's kind of crappy, and I really, really hope they figure out a way to resolve this. I really don't like the fact that uh, Kate has to succumb to everything that Chase says and orders her to do over and over and over again. I don't know how much more she can give them to the point where now she has to she has to reveal her secret identity to a prisoner who is helping them with a mission instead of keeping her identity secret. I mean, I just don't understand why she's doing... I mean, I know, obviously we all know why she's doing it, but I just don't understand why she's she she's giving no pushback other than just coming across as whiny sometimes. As far as the Arco, Trevor McCarthy, I think, did a knock-up job. This is definitely a step or two above what he's done on Nightwing and, and Gates of Gotham in the past. Um, he definitely stepped it up to, you know, be so, not necessarily... Well, not on the same level as J.H. Williams... Uh, but definitely very close to Amy Reader. I think he did a great job stepping up his artwork for this issue. Um, I applaud him for that because he did have some big shoes to fill. Um, overall, I think the story is, 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 is interesting, but I feel like this whole let's split up the stories by character is making the story seem like it's taking a very long time to get through and there's not very much happening in the story. There is a lot if you don't pay attention to the fact that, you know, it does say this is so-and-so's story, this is so-and-so's story. But to me, that just seems very... I don't know, There's, I don't feel like there's a point for it. I think it's just making it seem like everything is more divided. I mean, sorry, but if you have a 20-page comic and you have six different stories to tell, that's only about three and a half pages apiece. And that's clearly not what it actually is. So, needless to say, I... Uh, they need to they need to get out of this let's tell everything by character but uh overall i thought it was a decent issue three and a half out of five bad rings i don't really i don't it didn't, it didn't cross my mind that like dc's trying to like put all the gay characters in batwoman necessarily uh like, like you know because it is like just like an additional one although i think that it was odd i I'm not sure why why soon is attracted to her necessarily. I mean, I, I don't really see where that comes from. It kind of comes, it does kind of come out of nowhere. I think this issue is a little clumsily written in places, um, like what I just described. And the scene with uh, Kate and Maggie, that page where uh, Maggie says, "You know, it's Bullock. There's been another kip- kidnapping. I need to get off the ship." And uh, Kate says, "Wait, wait, Maggie, slow down for a minute. I know you're dedicated to your job. That's one thing I love you about you." And I wasn't really sure what the point of that was because I thought that like. It was sort of set up as though they were going to kind of tell them something that they one of them didn't know about the other. The other. But it kind of just ended up like sort of like this romantic thing. It kind of felt really awkward. And also, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm still not a fan of the whole perspectives on different timelines. I wouldn't mind the perspectives as much, but the timelines always, like, you know, trip me out. Trevor McCarthy, I thought his art was good in places, although there were some parts where I didn't think it looked like him. Especially the scene, um, especially in the, the the whole Maggie story scene, it looked like he maybe he was inked a certain way because 
I'm not saying it looked bad, but it just it didn't look recognizably like his style. Whereas the superhero stuff did. It was that was a lot more designy, a lot more wavy in the hair and stuff. Um, and my, my thoughts on this issue are sort of the same as, the, as has been for the entire story. I'll give it a three out of five. Better ranks. Uh, I actually found this issue quite hard to read, as I've kind of found myself really invested in Kate and Maggie's relationship, and we're kind of seeing it really tested here, not only from you know, soon kissing her, but then also just because of um, where Kate's had to kind of keep her distance from Maggie because of what Chase has been asking her to do, and I mean, I guess that's a testament to how well written I think the relationship is, but um, and I think in this issue especially, it's just, uh, you know, it's, you kind of want everything to work out, and I guess, you know, you can't always have a happy ending, but it's it's going to be interesting to see where it goes and how it plays out. I thought that McCarthy did a really good job, and uh I haven't always been a fan of his art style. I'll, I would say that he probably is... He definitely seems influenced by the previous art styles of the book, in particular the layouts. But um, I, I enjoyed his, his artwork in here. Having said that, I wonder if the Killer Croc in this issue was pre some kind of mutation, because I think they mentioned something about a muta- his him going through a mutation, whether that's before that that happens in the timeline of this arc, or if it's just a ki- different character design from McCarthy opposed to uh, opposed opposed to Amy Reader. I thought the issue started off a little forced, especially the hospital scene, but I think the issue grew to something really great with help from all the relationship scenes, and then the the final panel I think was uh, definitely keeping me hanging for the next book. So four out of five batterings. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll side with Joe here that it still had its really good qualities, though there were some some down points. You know, it, it was really difficult to believe that all of this started with the weeping woman way back in September, and that we are now nearly rounding out a full year, and we're sort of still in that time that uh, storyline. I still like the rough interactions between uh, Chase and Batwoman because it really shows how against this partnership she is, and and I think that um, yeah, it is really rough for her to continually follow orders, and I think right now it's acceptable that that's happening in this book, but just like Batman and Robin, I think that at, at some point it, that's going to change, and she's going to start sort of rubbing up against her and saying, no, I'm not going to do this, no, I'm not going to do this. But Chase has something to hold over her, so until that changes, who knows what we're going to see. I like getting to know Soon and her backstory. We, we haven't really learned too much about her up until this point. But of course, the plot thickens, shippers are added, and now we have a shipping triangle with three women. I don't know if I've encountered that before in my shipping history. I don't like the final panel just because I really like Maggie and Kate. So adding one, yeah, I love shippers, but adding another person to that, I don't really like it. Plus, I didn't get butterflies, so it's not a good it's not a good relationship. I like seeing Kate and Maggie interacting again. I felt like it's been a little while, at least a couple months, you know, since we've seen them have um, good interactions. I do wonder who this Falchion guy is. Why is he bleeding blue? Is he wearing a mask, or is he really a skeleton? I, I just sort of want to know more. We're only learning bits and pieces. We know he yells a lot and has creepy people around, and he's obviously an underling to some big person out there. And speaking of that big person, more and more, I'm getting the feeling that Alice um, 
Kate's sister is sort of behind it all. I know that she quote-unquote died in uh, the detective's run, but I just feel like this seems like something up her alley. I'm also getting a bad feeling about Bets. You know, I'm wondering if she's either going to die or become some darker version of herself. But as always, the art is great. Um, even with a new artist, I think it, it, this book is con- consistently the the... <laughs> I want to say bestly drawn, but it's not the most optimally drawn book, I think, consistently. I especially love the page with the general just standing outside the hospital room and the full page with the darkness sort of bleeding out among the panels. I would give this 3.5 out of 5 batterings. All right, so Batwoman number 9 gets a total of 3.5 out of 5 batterings. Let's move into our next book, Batman Beyond Unlimited number 4, The Batman Chapters. Took me weeks to get tickets for this show. It's Shway. It's Schwarbage. Batman Beyond Unlimited number four, The Trigger Man Part Four, Stan Mad. Script Adam Beecham, Art Norm Brayfogle, and color Andrew Elder. The issue begins with Mad Stan pushing a hover pallet loaded with explosives in an abandoned grocery store, planning to blow it all up. The Russians arrive, spy their merchandise on the pallet, and ask if Stan has seen something very small like a credit card. Stan, in fact, has the card, though he thought it was some sort of license. In Russian, the dealers say that he is a fool and does not know that the card is a trigger, capable of arming any explosive remotely. Actually, they are the fools because Stan can speak Russian. Stan arms the trigger and asks for boom boom. The dealers warn that not only will Stan kill his dog, but himself as well if he does not hand over the device. In a touching moment, Stan speaks of a vow that he and Boom Boom made, that they would never let others dictate their lives, and that they would always make their own decisions, that they would die together before compromising their integrity. Yark! Boom Boom says in response, and Stan gets ready to detonate the explosives before Batman zooms in and knocks him down. Stan drops the trigger and the Russians deal the Russian dealers begin shooting both Stan and Batman, narrowly missing the explosives. Stan throws a bunch of bombs, Batman throws his battering, Stan gets shot in the leg, the Russians grab Boom Boom again, Batman saves Boom Boom, then next Stan down as he goes for the detonator. Stan activates the detonator and Batman disengages the hover lock on the pallet full of explosives. The place goes up in flames, Batman has a trigger, and Stan and the Russians are out. With the case closed, Priority 1 goes to finding Dana's brother. And yow! Priority 2 is to get vaccinated for rabies. Later in prison, Stan has a visitor, namely his public defender. Stan starts yelling about the man until he sees that the true visitor is really Boom Boom. Aw, what a special moment. Next up, Legends of the Dark Knight, Jake. Alright, Batman Beyond Unlimited number 4 of the Batman chapters. This was this did a good job of wrapping everything up. Um, I think Norm Brayfogle's art was a was a little bit better than the last issue. Uh, I'm not sure if that's because he had more time or what, but uh, it seemed as if he had he had more going. He had longer amount of time to you know master his art. the The only thing I have to say is it does seem a, just a tad odd every time Terry says Shway because. It just when you read the word on page, it doesn't to me. It doesn't come across as the same way that he would say it when he would say it in the TV series. But that's I mean, there's no way to get around that. It is nice to know that he obviously made the right choice and went after Mad Stan instead of Dana. 
But that's what the entire next storyline is about, is about him dealing with Dana's brother. I think this was good. It wrapped up everything that it needed to, and it still, you know, gave some sort of conclusion for Mad Stan, so that we don't necessarily have to see him for a while. And so far, I've got to say, Adam Beechin has done a decent job at, you know, telling his story that he needs to tell. Mm -hmm. You know, he can add in his bits here and there that he wants, like with the whole, you know, Lucius Fox Jr. and Tim Drake are working for Wayne Enterprises now. He can add those little bits in, but reality, and and still plant seeds for future storylines, but still wrap up everything very completely within the story arc so that you're not left with a thousand questions, which seems to be the case with so many other series right now. So, overall, I'm going to give this four out of five batterings. I agree. I thought this was another uh, good installment of Batman Beyond Unlimited. Um, mainly because, you know, because there was a lot more of a it was Stan's story as opposed to Terry's story in the last uh, issue. Um, I don't have much to say about it. I like, I'm still liking Brave Focal's art, although I, I kind of pine for his more energetic style of yesteryear, although there's nothing really, you can really do about that. I still, what carries it for me, though, is I really still love his interpretation of um, uh, Terry's Batman suit. I really like how he has his, uh, a lot of times he's faces in silhouettes, and he, he gets that like sort of like, you know, face mask really done really well. And every time Batman shows up, I'm paying, I'm, I'm paying attention. Um, I, thought it was a nice, I thought it was a nice gag that uh, Stan knew Russian. And um, the ending was a little schmaltzy, but, you know, it's Matt Stan. You can't take him too seriously. So I'll give it a three and a half out of five better ranks. Uh, I also like the way Norm Brayfogel puts Terry's face in silhouette because I don't think that Norm Brayfogel can draw faces. But I know I'm kind of in the minority there. <laughs> uh, you have the pitchforks done. <laughs> I uh, I did actually like this issue though, and I thought um, it was it was very fun. Like I said, I'm not overly familiar with the Batman Beyond universe, but I've grown to like Mad San, and I I want to track down some of those episodes with him in. Seems like those would be uh, some of the good ones, and um, yeah, definitely a, a fun issue. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing more with Dennis' brother and the Joker's gang and what's going on there. Because I think that's what kind of the main story behind all of this. But it's like Dustin was saying, it's there are other stories well interwoven within it, so that it doesn't feel like uh, anything's being left out or forgotten about. So I, I also think he's doing a really good job. Yeah, like I said, I, I like this issue, so three out of five batterings. I was nervous this entire time while people were reviewing because I thought my hamster had died, but she's okay now. Um, let's see here. Oh, okay. Well, you know, if if Batwoman is consistency be- consistently beautiful, then I would say that Batman Beyond is consistent... <laughs> is consistently the most fun <laughs> out of all of the uh, books that we see. So, you know, there are some questions that I had. It's unclear what Stan is doing at, you know, the beginning of the issue and whether he had set the meeting up with the Russians or he was just going to blow a bunch of stuff up. And then, you know, if he was playing on a trade, why would he say he was going to blow everything up? So that was, that was a little confusing. I also wonder if Stan knew all along what the car did, and he was just plain stupid. I loved that he fooled them all by speaking Russian. That was great. I absolutely loved the moment with Boom Boom, where Stan is going through this vow they made, and it's as if Boom Boom totally remembers and is ready to die for the mission. <laughs> After the trigger is activated, I think the issue really picks up in speed. Like it seems like it was beep, 
beep, but then once you get it, beep, 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 beep you know, it's just really fast with, with action, uh, a lot of things going on at once. I like Batman trying to use Boom Boom to where Stan away, sort of holding him and saying, I've got Boom Boom, Stan, as if that would stop him, but, you know, he, his eye's always on the mission. Boom Boom biting Batman, and then, of course, the end scene with Stan in jail. And, you know, this was at the heart of it about a man's love for his dog. So, people, if you love dogs, you should A, read Aquaman, remember that, and B, read Batman Beyond, 4.5 out of 5 batterings. All right, so Batman Beyond Unlimited, number four, the Batman chapters, gets a total of three and a half out of five batarangs. So we're going to our next title, Catwoman number nine. Look, Batman napalmed my arm. He knocked me off a building just when I was starting to feel good about myself. I want to play an integral part in his degradation. I want in. The thought of busting Batman makes me feel all... dirty. Catwoman issue 9, Mirrors Come in All Sizes. Writer Judd Winnick, illustrated by Gillian March. Uh, Just like all the other Night of the Owl crossover titles, we begin this issue uh, in the past, the 1700s, in in 1665, with uh, the story of another Talon. He was so good at his job that he ended up killing more people than he needed to. So the Talon's like, well, we can't be having that. So well, let's punish him. by bury him in alchemy forever. Wah-ha-ha-ha-ha. Got to Gotham, you know, in present day, where Catwoman and Spark are, you know, they're sort of, uh, I think they're, yeah, they're spying on the Penguin. They're figuring out when to rob him of his valuable knives that may have been the last issue, I don't really recall. And, um... While unbeknownst to them, the penguin is the target of uh, the talons and the knights, or the owls, I should say. Yeah. Um, cut to 2:03 a.m. and just when they're about to uh, rob him of his belongings, the penguin gets ambushed by one by, by the very talon that was brought back to life from the flashback, and um, the talon is momentarily stunned because of that knife. And Spark and Catwoman are, are looking at this. Spark says. Let's go, you know, gigs up, you know, there's nothing we can do against this guy. And Catwoman's like, yeah, I know. And then all of a sudden, she decides to jump in there and protect Penguin out, out of the blue. Um, so the rest of the issue is sort of a tussle between Catwoman and Spark and the Talon. And at one point, the Talon is stabbed through the neck, but actually survives because he's a Talon. And is about to, just, about to kill Spark by strangling him. Catwoman pleads to his inner psycho, and... Uh, Seemingly gets gets you know to the heart of uh, what what this guy's motivation is before Penguin blows his head off with uh, one of his trick umbrellas. So uh, Sparks like, let's get out of here. I want nothing. I want nothing more to do with this. But Catwoman has the sense to bury him in his knives, saying that not everybody was born a monster, and she wasn't born that way. All us monsters deserve a little mercy. Next, cops, robbers, and romance. All right, Catwoman number nine. I gotta say, out of all of the books that uh, we will be covering out of uh, the Night of Owls, I thought that the Catwoman's backstory for the talent that was involved in in Night of Owls, I thought was probably one of the best talent backstories that they had. And I say that because I think it not only explained his history, but also explained his purpose and why he feels and is you know why he feels he needs to do what he he is told to do by the the court of owls. Um, honestly, not I don't really 
I don't really like the way that uh, Penguin is drawn in this issue, but it's not it's not really that different than some of the other books that we've seen him drawn, so it's not that different. At least they're being consistent, I guess. It is kind of interesting how Catwoman the entire time, you know, Stella was actually saying earlier when we were reviewing, or when we read that interview with Judd Winnick about how, you know, Catwoman's been portrayed as this stupid girl who doesn't really have a moral compass, and here in this issue we actually see that she does have some sort of moral compass because she's convinced that she needs to help Penguin even though, you know, Penguin's a bad guy and what does it matter if he's dead? But for some reason, she feels convinced, despite Sparks saying, no, it's probably not a good idea. She's convinced that they need help. And then her inner monologue is basically her saying, I know a, f- a fair fight when I see one, and this one's not fair. Okay, well, you're, you, you, why do you care? Well, she has some sort of feelings for you know things being fair. And I, I, I like seeing that. The Talon, I think, was interesting. Of course, we have, do have that... Uh, uh, that unnecessary nudity in the book because it's Catwoman for some odd reason. But I thought that the Talon was an interesting story. I also found it interesting that uh, somehow, as as Don also pointed out, Catwoman does tie in very well with the other books. Um, somehow at the very end of the series, how uh, it kind of takes place after the events that happen in Red Hood and the Outlaws, uh, but but also after the events that happened at the in Batgirl too, um, so th- there's there's lots of ties. I do think it's also kind of interesting how she somehow didn't come across anybody at all um, <laughs> when the entire time she was taking out this talent. The other thing that is interesting is even though this would take place after the other books because the owl signal is no longer there and the bat signal is there, she had to turn the owl sig- or the bat signal on. Even though in every other book the bat signal was already turned on, and in some books there were people on top of the building where the bat signal was, but hey, I'm not poking, I'm not pointing judgment or anything. No, not at all. All right. Uh, overall, I'm going to give this three out of five batterings. Um, I like that Gillian March turned the book, and uh, <laughs> that's why my misgivings at this, uh, the content of his artwork. I thought he did a really nice job in this issue. Um, I especially liked how Selena looked, like when she decides to jump into, uh, or right before she decides to jump in and save Penguin. I, I like her looks of, you know, uh, obvious, you know, feelings of conflict. And I like when she's like talking to the talent, saying, "You can be whole again." She has a lot of times you'll see uh, artists just, you know, literally copy and paste certain panels, which March does early in the pan- in the in the in the comic. But in this one, her facial expressions are similar, but they are different. And they're different enough where she doesn't, you know, it's, it's, it's really well done artwork. I'm not sure how to exactly describe it. But she looks very sincere. Um, this is going to make me sound like a total, like, I don't know, like, like I, nothing can please me or whatever. Um, but I, I'm really coming to this from, from honest feelings. Like, I had a problem with how Selena decided to save Penguin's life because while I'm all for having characters have a moral compass and, you know, even, like, like, you know, I'm all for Catwoman, you know, not being all-out bad guy, you know, her being sort of like an anti-hero or a good person, I felt that it wasn't really earned. Because I, I thought, you know, really, up until this point, she's just been shown to be, you know, a very selfish, uh, you know, self-minded woman. And I obviously, you know, she's not out-and-out evil. I mean, she wanted revenge for what happened to her friend Lola and all that stuff. Um... So and you know she she was concerned about you know the hookers being uh, kidnapped and stuff. She's not you know all out bad, but at the same time, 
I didn't think that like they really illustrated why she felt the need to save Penguin, based on how her character has been portrayed in the series thus far. I don't know if I'm making a lot of sense, but it's just like this this interpretation of Catwoman when she would see somebody like the Penguin being ganged upon. I don't see this Catwoman really caring. I mean, it's, it's a Penguin. I mean, and I'm not saying like, like the Penguin you know, is the worst of the worst, but it's sort of like this. Uh, it's just it's just sort of like like a. Uh, uh, confliction I have with uh, how this Catwoman's been portrayed now that they're trying to build her up as a more uh, ethical person. I, I, I felt like they were kind of trying too hard, and they didn't really earn what they are going for. Um, but this this is actually a decent issue, for what it was. I'll give it 3 out of 5 batterings. Uh, this is the first issue, I guess, out of the ones we're looking at, where Judd Winnick is trying to make the the villain sympathetic again, and I don't think we've really seen that or need to see that from any of the other, I mean, I guess we saw a bit in uh, Batgirl, but in like Batman, and then the rest of them, you know, we we've just seen them as monsters, really, uh, and you know, just as an excuse for them to get beaten up pretty bad. <laughs> um, I do like the angle of Catwoman not knowing what's going on, and I guess that would then make more sense that. Uh, I guess that would make more sense that she was sympathetic towards it because she doesn't know what's going on and I like the fact that she's not in contact with, you know, Alpha in the Batcave and and then getting caught because I was afraid that that was going to happen but because um, I, I I like the fact that it was separate I I, I definitely not uh, opposed to her having more of a moral compass because, you know, it, it makes it less of an issue for Batman to be with her or without her, you know, whatever their relationship is if she is just if she could just watch someone get killed like that then obviously uh, that would definitely be there would be more of an issue with their relationship it's, you know, it's good to have Gear March back, I suppose, for continuity's sake but he's not really my favourite artist but yeah, I mean I, I'm i not sure how I feel about the, the angle that's taking of uh you know the town being made out to be sympathetic. I like the the whole backstory of it. It's, it's honor needing to be restored and how it was embarrassed to start with. I think that's good. But for Catwoman to just see him and think, oh, there's a guy who needs help. I think that's a bit off. But then, like I said, if she doesn't understand the context of them and what they're doing and who they are, then it doesn't make it like an issue for her to. Uh, say oh hey I'm going to help this person out so it was I guess a decent issue from that point of view so 3 out of 5 batterings I think certainly first and foremost for me I really like uh, because a lot of these Night of the Owls issues it seems like we had a storyline going wait let's hold off on it okay Night of the Owls okay we're going to get back to it and that happens to several of these books but this one the previous issue actually lends its way or lends a, a piece of it, namely the knife, to the storyline. So I really like that the knife in the previous issue actually connects with the owls. Probably my least uh, favorite backstory for a Talon, c- because those are really the backstories are really what grab us, I think, and and really get us to not really, I guess, care, but may, that may be too heavy of a word. But you know, actually enjoy or find these talents entertaining or seeing what their lives were like before. But I, I didn't really like this one as much. I do wonder if the owls keep documents on the different owls uh, and their 
Okay. I do wonder if the Alice keep documents on the different Talons and their missions, given the comments when the Talon woke up and, and talked of honor, and the Alice said, oh, yes, we read about this one. So I wonder what sort of journal entries they make. It was interesting having the Owls go after Penguin. Yes, they call him a blight on the city, but, hey, they seem to have a lot in common, actually. I appreciate the sense that Catwoman finally shows in in going to Cobblepot's rescue. I'm glad that the character's going in this direction. I look forward to more of this type of Selina Kyle. Catwoman paid the most honor to the talent compared to all the other characters, which I thought was really ironic. Remember the discussion we had last episode, episode 92, when we were like, why are they just killing these, you know, willy-nilly? And she actually sort of lays them out and, and just pays a lot of honor and respect to his body, which I thought was pretty interesting. Where did that bat signal come from? Why? That's so weird. Why didn't Catwoman get the call from Alfred? I thought, you know, he sent it all out to all known associates. Those are two big questions that I have. This bat signal and then this uh, this call, not getting it. Does this, does Catwoman happen after Batgirl number nine? I don't know. Maybe the time is messed up. I give this two out of five batterings. All right, Catwoman number nine gets a total of three out of five batterings. Let's move into our next issue, All-Star Western number nine. Desperate times will twist a man in ways he never thought he'd been. Hex, what are you doing in the future? You're just trying to make it back to the past. War world. This ain't perfect. Now, I always took you for a civilized fella, except for that goofy getup you parade around in. So I expect you'll come along without stirring up a fuss. Don't mistake my patience for compliance, Hex. If you're trying to do this the hard way, you better have something better on the draw than them there boomerangs. Written by Justin Gray and Jimmy Palmiotti. Art by Moriat and a number of other artists. Um, I'm going to make this extremely quick because, quite honestly, this issue was... Uh, much less rooted in Night of Owls than uh, originally anticipated. So, those of you who haven't been reading All-Star Western, we are covering this specifically because it ties into Night of Owls. Or so we are made to believe. <laughs> the issue starts off, I've been reading All-Star Western for a while, so if you haven't been reading it, you're not going to really understand what's going on up until I talk about Night of Owls. But the issue starts off with Jonah Hex basically apprehending the August 7, which is a group of, uh, I guess a, a, a gang of villains, I guess you would call them, in uh, New Orleans. Um, he's joined by uh, Nighthawk and Cinnamon, who disperse of the August 7 very quickly and take them into custody. After this is all said and done, there's a man on the other side of the city who's running through the city, running from somebody, and he, it turns out the person he's running from is a female Talon who is chasing him. He says to him that uh, he left Gotham to protect the knowledge that he had, and the Talon starts you know, pricking his face and so forth until he screams real loud, and then Jonah Hex and Amadeus Arkham on horses arrive. Jonah Hex tries to shoot this female. She escapes. He proceeds to say that he's seen women like that before, but uh, they're from the circus. She ha she was moving just like an acrobat. 
they pull a dagger out of the man, and it has an owl on it. And then they take the man, and they realize that this is actually the former uh, deputy of sanitation, or the head of Gotham Sanitation um, for Gotham City, obviously. And uh, Amadeus Arkham tries to press Jonah Hex about questions related to his wedding. Three weeks later, in uh, Gotham City at the Wayne Casino, um, a number of men are gathered around a table. Uh, the Wayne is having a kind of an argument with one of the people there um, regarding a situation with some land. Uh, Wayne is saying that they need to have the land for parks and public spaces, and the other man is an investor who's saying, no, the land needs to be for homes and businesses because more people are coming to Gotham because Gotham is a very rich land. Out of nowhere, there's a female who shows up who decides that she wants to kill this man for stealing her her uh, family's land and killing them, and she calls them land barons and then goes to kill them, and right as she's about to kill him, uh, a man in some mask shows up, presents himself as the bodyguard to the man, the investor, and in turn throws her out a window right in front of Jonah Hex. Uh, we then cut back to New Orleans where Nighthawk and Cinnamon are fighting against each other, or f fighting against another character, and after they apprehend him, uh, they find out that uh, there's actually a whole hidden plot of things going on where this man is actually working for someone very high and powerful in New Orleans. Um, we s Nighthawk and Cinnamon uh, share a kiss, and at the end of it, uh, after um, this man, this man's entire house is is blown up and burnt up by Nighthawk and Cinnamon as they all stand outside waiting for them to arrive to take them out. All of the men run away, and the man says, "You know, why would you do this to me?" And then Night and Cinnamon says, "Well, it's because you destroyed my life." As they're about to pull the trigger, Nighthawk says, "We have to uh, arrest him." Uh, the man pulls Nighthawk's own gun at him and is about to shoot him when Cinnamon throws her sheriff's star right at the guy's neck, killing him instantaneously. Now that it's all said and done, uh, Nighthawk says, what are we going to do now, Cinnamon? And they say, well, maybe we should settle down together. And that is All-Star Western number nine. <laughs> all right. So like I was said, there is not a whole lot that actually happens in this issue relating to the Night of Owls. There's, it's almost as if it was a cameo. This person appears, says something about the Gotham Sanitation. Honestly, I can't figure out how that ties into anything that's going into the other books, except for the fact that it's somebody from Gotham, and an owl, some, for some reason, even though the Talons, by my knowledge, are supposed to maintain Gotham, is in New Orleans trying to take out this guy who left Gotham to try to keep the secret of the Talons. So I'm not real sure what's going on. Put aside the fact that it has nothing really to do with the Night of Owls or really play into the Night of Owls uh, crossover event, I love the art in this book. I've always loved the art in this book. I enjoy this book. The Nighthawk and Cinnamon, I think this is a, f a real nice take on the characters that, you know, the previous characters from the past... This was probably one of the, the best reboots of the characters that have happened in the New 52. And if you're not reading it, great. You know, you're not really missing anything as far as uh, 
Batman related, but there are just these little hints and, and dabs at things that are, you know, of Gotham's past, and I really enjoy it. So overall, I think this issue um, was good, but has nothing to do with Night of Owls. I'm going to give it four out of five batterings. Uh, um, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a little embarrassed because I have no opinion on this, on this comic. I'm not going to say it was bad at all. It's just that, like, I mean, just like Dustin said, uh, I don't read Jonah Hex. Um, I'm not really a Western guy. And even, like, you know, connected to Nine of Owls, it was almost like, you know, it was one of those things where DC wanted, you know, an extra five bucks in the, in the you know, in their week. Um, I have nothing to say about this. Um, I mean, really, the only thing I have interest was the, was the owl, and like that was so loosely connected to it. Then it could have been in a, it could have been like in Superman. I, yeah, I'm sorry, I I really am. I mean, I, I'm not gonna say it's bad, but like I just you know it was just sort of like reading a comic book that I had no nothing no knowledge on. Um, but if you like Jonah Hex, keep on reading it and basically ignore the time that I've wasted for you. Two and a half out of five batterings. Um, I'm. I guess I'm similar to Donovan. It, it feels a bit like when every now and then we do like a, a Batman crossover event, and we have to read an issue which is kind of in the middle of another series, and we don't really know what's going on. Because uh, I'm not reading this, and uh, like like Dustin said, it's, it is basically a cameo. So the rest of the issue is, you know, all about the continuity of the uh, All Star Western book. Having said that, I quite enjoyed what I read. I'm probably going to go and pick up the first trade of All-Star Western because uh, I do like these hints of Gotham's past and stuff, but as for a tie-in, it, it probably gets like a one, one out of five. But uh, as the actual issue, I guess I'll give it two and a half. I, I, I kind of enjoyed what I read. Whew. Um, yeah, I was... <laughs> just thinking, wow, what is going on? This is really being plopped in the middle of something. I really missed the transitions, I think. It's just like the comic speeds from one scene to the next, and it's really clear where the artist changes, whereas sometimes, you know, that's rather seamless in other issues. So I wasn't as sold on the art as Dustin was. But, uh, yeah, the big thing is, yikes, how is this considered a tie into the Court of the Owls? When that only happens for a split second, you blink and you missed it. And with the changed art, it is like someone just decided to sort of slip it in without others noticing. <laughs> but I noticed. I, I do like the design of the owl with the feathers around the neck. I thought that was interesting. But another acrobat, and this is something you're going to be hearing from me all night. Another acrobat, another circus-related owl or talon. What's that about? Uh, gee, I didn't even give it a rating. Uh, I Three out of five batterings. I would just like to say that. I did like the fact that it was a female talent because, you know, we've only seen one of those so far, and that was in Batgirl, so surprise, surprise there. So it was nice to see, uh, you know, a female talent opposed to the the regular males, which we're so used to by now. Agreed. All right. So, overall, All-Star Western number nine gets a total of Three out of five batterings. Let's move into our next issue. Batman Incorporated, number one. Oh, yes. Yep. Gotham needs a Batman, and Batman needs a Robin. Young Damien rose above great tragedy and proved that his father lived on through him. 
I'm going to kill oh, Yes, him. indeed. Batman Incorporated number one, written by Grant Morrison with art by Chris Burnham. The issue opens with Bruce standing in the rain in front of his parents' graves. He turns to Alfred and says, Tell the others it's over. Batman. All of it. Alfred, Alfred replies, Isn't that exactly what they want, Master Bruce? Just as the couple turn around to face the GCPD, where Gordon is shouting, Bruce Wayne, you are under arrest. Dun dun dun. One month previously. Batman and Robin are chasing after man in a goat, in a goat mask, who they follow into an abattoir. Once there, Batman and Robin fight several masked men, but we learn through narration that an assassin named Goatboy is attempting to assassinate Robin for half a billion, half a billion dollars <laughs> on behalf of Leviathan so that he can afford to give his son a good life. Batman saves Robin, but Goatboy runs away, leaving Batman to examine the abattoir. He notices the cows have been branded with a demon star, relating to the goat-themed gang. Meanwhile, Leviathan is hosting a meal for possible new members. The host tells a Mr. Grimm that the West Side now belongs to Leviathan. Mr. Grimm begins to protest, but tells off and says, If my bro were here, he'd say this better. He's got all the brains. To which Leviathan replies, The others ate beef. You wait your brother! Brains too. <laughs> Before two man that henchmen fly Mr. Grimm out of the window. As this is happening, Batman and Robin are chasing down a truck with the Demon Star brand logo on the side. Robin takes out the truck, but as they are tying up the suspects, Mr. Grimm slams into the concrete, to which Batman says, Looks like your mother's trying to get my attention again. In San Francisco, we see a British man enter a sex shop to pick up an outfit. The man ends up being The Hood, and he turns up at the Batcave West, home of the Dead Heroes Club a group of Batman Inc. agents thought dead by Leviathan. Batman realises that every assassin in the world must be in Gotham looking to kill Robin, just like a group of mutants that they run into. However, Goatboy is waiting for them with his sniper. Just as Goatboy is taking aim, Batman walks up behind him, but we cut to Leviathan headquarters where Goatboy and another assassin are being questioned. The Leviathan member we saw earlier ends up believing Goatboy, and we see, the Goat Boy, we see that Goatboy apparently shot Batman in the head before doing the same to Robin. Scared of Batman's wrath, Goatboy then asks Leviathan for help. Next, Eye of the Gorgon. Alright, Batman Incorporated number one. This was a very interesting issue, but there's some problems with continuity, mm -hmm. as we expected. Go on. Thank you. Um, <laughs> okay, so first off, we have the Dead Heroes Club, the, the club where people, you know, Leviathan thinks all these characters are dead. Why is Batwing there? I don't know. <laughs> um, I mean, he was honestly the only character that really threw me off because yeah. all the other characters they haven't shown up anywhere. You know, we have the previous we have previous members of uh, the Outsiders, which we really haven't seen any of the Outsiders. You know, in a very very capacity. I mean, some members are members of different things, and most of them we haven't seen at all since the New Fifty Two began. So it makes sense of why those characters are in this Dead Heroes Club. It makes sense why the Hood's there, because we haven't seen that character either. But Batwing is the only character that is appearing not only in Batwing, but now he's appearing in Justice League Unlimited, and also the same month he appeared in Fury of Fire, uh, Firestorm. So, how does anybody think he's dead? So that was one issue that yeah, I... That, that was one issue that's that the I one that threw me off as well. 
So that was the first thing. The the second thing was we almost almost we almost got out of the Damien's a brat phase. He is now okay with Bruce. We we finished that storyline in Batman and Robin with issue number uh, issue number eight, which was last month, or well, I should say it was in April because we're in June now. But it was last month that that whole issue where you know Bruce gained Damien's respect. Damien gained respect for. Bruce. It was a, you know, we are going to be a team that works together, blah, blah, blah. And here we are, one month later, crap back right where we started, where Damien doesn't want to work with Bruce because Bruce doesn't trust him, or Bruce, you know, Damien thinks Bruce has all these thoughts that he doesn't really have about him killing people. Now, I will give props to most likely editorial for referencing nobody being killed by Damien. I I, prob- I I give them props probably because I don't think that Grant Morrison wrote this story with the intent of including nobody. But at the same time, that saying, hey, guess what? All of that stuff that happened in Batman and Robin happened. But now in this book, where we're going right back to Bruce doesn't trust Damien because he's making that comment about how he happened to hold that guy up while Goat Boy was trying to shoot him. I mean, can we please just get away from the fact that they can't get along. Why is Damien threatening to go work with Nightwing or saying he doesn't want to work with Bruce because he doesn't trust him? We just need to get away from that completely. Clearly, these two characters are going to have to work with each other for a while because, well, one, in normal continuity, they work together and they don't work separately, but also, well, separately as far as they don't work with another hero, but also at the same point, we know for a fact that the story involves Talia al Ghul, which means these two characters are the biggest tie to Talia al Ghul within the Batman universe. So they have to figure out some way of making this work. Okay, so that aside, of course we get the crazy Grant Morrison stuff with Goat Boys and all of these people wearing the animal masks inside of the butcher's shop and, you know, a crazy, crazy fight ensues inside of the butcher's shop using the butcher weapons and things like that. In my mind, that's classic Grant Morrison, just the craziness. Um... We, we, we see the whole Leviathan uh, meeting, which I thought we already determined who Leviathan was, so I'm not real sure why Leviathan is all hidden up. But then again, it's been a while since we had that one shot back in December for Batman Incorporated. Um, I thought the art was good. I thought it was much better than Chris Burnham's art last year on, on uh, Batman Incorporated. I don't know what it is, but I thought that the art was a little bit more detailed. Maybe it's because he had a little bit more time. But that concerns me because if he's not super far ahead, we're going to have to get a fill-in artist here and there just like we do on a lot of these other books. Quite honestly, overall, I thought it was a, it was a good book. I just wish that some of this continuity stuff would work itself out a little bit better because this, is, this was such an important part of the Batman universe before the New 52, and I feel as if they're wrapping it up because they feel like they need to wrap it up. But they're they're not focusing on the fact that it, there's still so many holes in continuity because of what the new 52 has done. So with that being said, I'm gonna give it three and a half out of five batterings. I see you on all your points, and I acknowledge them. But I still really really like this issue. I mean, I really liked it, and like, like I don't know what it is <laughs> because Grant Morrison is harkening back to like. Uh, you know, the new the new two is really distracting. You know, we have to kind of get used to certain things, and the continuity is so muddy. With Grant Morrison, 
you kind of you can kind of be safe in that, uh, that like you know it'll feel at least a bit familiar. So I will admit that there is some bias and and um, preferential uh, uh, going into preference going into like you know this comic, but at the same time on its own merits and like what the story was in this single issue, I really liked it. I liked you know Chris Burnham. I, I don't think I would normally like this type of art, but like just because of the stuff that he was drawing. Uh, being detailed, uh, some of the details are really subtle too. It's almost like a Where's Waldo book because the images can be so small, but there's there are things going on like uh, when Batman and Robin are chasing Goat Boy and he shoots, uh, and, and the bullet goes through Batman's cave. You see Damien dodge and then also push the guy out of the way too. Like there's a lot of stuff going on in like every panel, and like there's a lot of like there's a lot of gore, which I think. I uh, reading Super Gods and knowing that Grant Morrison's a vegetarian, I guess you can get get a little. I used to kind of see that he's getting a little bit, a little bit political. Although I kind of think it's tongue in cheek when um, Robin say, you know, uh, I'm a vegetarian. This is uh, the bat cow. <laughs> uh, that's kind of, kind of silly. I will totally throw up my hands and admit that um, it does strike odd that Bruce and Damien are bickering at, bickering at each other again in this comic. However, the way I read it, and you can totally, you know, say you're full of it, Donovan, but, like, the way I read it is that, like, this is another one of their sort of, like, you know, this is one of the kind of, like, you know, the kind of personality spats that, at the end of the day, doesn't really mean anything, and I, I guess I'm kind of digging myself a hole here, but really, like, it kind of felt to me as though, you know, Bruce is one personality, and Damien's another personality, the two strong personalities, you know, where, you know, every now and then they're going to kind of get into a spat. I mean, he does the same thing with Dick Grayson. But once you kind of read the issue and see them working together and kind of dealing with certain situations, I got the sense that they were on, they were on good terms. Like like when they're you know fighting the cow people at the beginning, and at the end when the guy falls in the concrete and they're both like, uh, I don't know. Like <laughs> I, I, I liked it. I generally liked it. I mean, because I didn't think that like what Damien was saying was you know anything that we haven't heard before or anything that bad. You know, it felt like they're kind of going through the numbers. Um, and not really, you know, I mean, they were kind of annoyed with each other, but they weren't really, like, sniping as much as they have in the past. Although, I will say, is is Batman talking to Damien about the guy he killed in the Leviathan Strikes one shot? Or is it somebody else? Because I was a little confused on that. Yeah, or, or, Nets was the, the guy with, like, the glass goggles and stuff from the... Okay. Okay, I got you, I got you. And I also liked how he, he not only references nobody, but he references Spook, which goes way back into, like, Damien's first appearance. Um, also, I will I will also admit that you know Batwing threw me off as well. I, I why is he there? But you know I don't really I don't really care as much. And um, again, going back to the art, I really love, I really love the scene where uh, Batman and Robin are swinging on the on the across the buildings, and you see the reflections in different shots, almost as if they're different panels. I thought that was really really cool <laughs> and really nice. And like you know it's it's typical it's typical like you know Grant Morrison stuff. He kind of subverts the typical. Uh, Superhero tropes. Um, I kind of laughed out loud when Batman got shot in the face because he has such a funny look on his face. And like the final panel is a typical no kind of thing where you know, yeah, yeah, Damien's dead. Yeah, I believe that. Sure, all right. I, I enjoyed the issue. I mean, I might be the only one because um, Stella's getting her knife out to stab me in the back. But uh, <laughs> I thought it was fun. I, I I'll give it four and a half out of five batterings. I respect you. I'll look into your eyes while I stab you. <laughs> oh, no. The first cut is the deepest. I freaking love this issue. I had the biggest smile on my face while I was reading this, and I Hell really yeah. miss this series. 
I thought this was a great return to it. Uh, Tony, I'd say it's somewhere between Batman and Robin and Batman Inc. Volume 1. So it's like it just reads really fun, but it also kind of feels important at the same time. I thought the art was fantastic. I mean, it's extremely inconsistent, but there's something about it that I just love. I mean, it's so, like, gory, and but it's just it just feels really, like, energetic and really emotional, which I really... And then some of the, the things in there, like that panel when they're in the abattoir and it's like kind of like a fishbowl lens almost and then when Robin's doing like the 360 uh, just attacking all the guys in the circle things like that I think I think it did a decent job of stitching the continuity back together the one thing that threw me off was David slash Desmond uh, you know Batwing just because we don't know who he is Uh, who's that guy not the song in the Batcave the one with the he looks like Knight but he's got the red visor because I recognise him I just don't remember who he is the hood no not the hood he's um well we've not we don't he's, know he's, who that he's guy the is last yet. one he says like it or not yeah like they've been hyped oh, like yeah, I think yeah. in, in like one of the in the issue where like they show like uh, Cassandra Cain in Hong Kong we, we see that guy for the first time and like he's like who could he be oh yeah yeah I remember it's just like the hood was that character that they originally said no one can know your identity because you must be your identity must be kept secret. Yeah. Yep. That, they made such a big deal about that and okay, yeah, I'm walking in to, without his identity covered up into a sex shop. But yeah, okay. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> um. Yeah, I, I felt that Robin's comment about or uh, yeah Robin's uh, so I felt that Batman's comment about nobody and referencing that took away a bit from how Robin reacted to killing Otto Nets in Leviathan Strikes but then I thinking about it, it it still works I just felt that when we were reading that one shot you know it was because it contrasted to the Robin that we were reading at the time and it was like how he should be written and uh but I still think it works and then I, I agree with Donovan I read it as more of a, a little spat you know like a father son I didn't read into it as because I'd be the first person to pick up on that because I've always hated that they don't get along especially in this in the new 52 but I, I read that as just you know them going through the motions and then like are you bringing this up again alright then and then just you know getting into a like like Don said, by the numbers, just an argument that they have all the time. And I didn't read into that as something malicious. It was funny, I, in the scene just after the page where we see their sort of reflections on the uh, on the buildings where we first see the mutants, which was also a cool reference to Dark Knight Returns, obviously. Um, in that little bar scene, we can see the red-hooded woman from the all the number one issues and I wonder if that's just because it's a number one or just Chris Burnham wanted to throw that in but I noticed that I thought that was quite funny oh, where is she? It, you know the 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 page the four page spread of them kind of you see their that's panels on the right next to the arcade machine yeah well yeah oh, I, thought sure. it was an, I thought it was an amazing issue so five out of five batterings uh, yeah thank you Dustin seriously for <laughs> 
putting that out there. I'm going to certainly build on that, but I'm glad that there is someone else that it bothered. I am going to start with the positive stuff. I thought that it certainly was a very intriguing beginning, just kind of starting off this way. You're under arrest, and then, bam, we're, we're somewhere else. So it kind of gets you, it, it, ties, it pulls you in really quickly. I like the top panel with the red boxes that zoom in on the characters' faces. You've got Robin, Batman, and then Goatman. Mm-hmm. I did like Robin saying I didn't do it when the bad guy was killed. That that <laughs> seems very, you know, like him. You know, like, oh, my gosh, my dad's going to think, you know, I did this. But he didn't. So I, I, I enjoy that. A particularly gruesome setting for a story, this meatpacking place. And it reminds me of Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, which Stella heartily recommends for the literary recommendation of TBU. And then Bat Cow. Uh, so we've got a dog. We've got a dinosaur in the cave. Now we can have a cow. So this will be good. Uh, I, I think, you know, it's weird. Someone told me about it, and I thought, oh, that is so strange. But I think it's cute, and, you know, it's classic, and you're really building on something different. But here is where I have my issues, and it is continuity. And somebody yelled at me and said, why do you have to be a continuity nerd? And I sort of became upset at this, because if things don't fit together and make sense, I think that there is, (laughs) I think there's an issue there. I think that everything does need to go together, you know, which is, I guess, contradicting what Judd Winnick said in in that interview. But when does this issue take place? Because... (laughs) <laughs> did well did Robin kill Otto Nets after Batman and Robin number eight? Because you know, the nobody like the way that that whole thing is phrased, it's like he killed nobody first. Batman and Robin number eight happened and then that Batman Inc. story happened, which was very confusing for me. Um well, so th- Well I took it as is you know at the start of that it says this the events of this issue take place before Flashpoint. I took that as the the Steph Batgirl story took place before Flashpoint because they they couldn't like reverse that sort that out, and then the the part with Leviathan on the in the the maze Leviathan maze or whatever it's called that took place in modern continuity, and then like even if it was when they're on costume that's probably just because it was already drawn, and you can probably excuse that maybe it's even like a Leviathan costume. Or Batman Inc. costume specifically for Batman Inc. That's how I got around that. Okay. Um, so I guess that's explain. I I don't know. It, it just seemed weird the way that whole thing was phrased. But my main issue, I think, is very much this struggling Batman-Robin relationship. And, you know, Dustin really summed it up. Why are we back to this? And... Yes, we can say this is a spat, this is just going to be their thing, they're going to have it, but it was almost as if Grant Morrison was copying scripts from one of the first Batman and Robins of this DC New 52. This whole thing that he said, why did you even come back, bother coming back from the dead? He said that in Batman and Robin. Dick never did this when I was his partner. He said that in Batman and Robin. And this is what ticks me off, is that we had grown so much in Batman and Robin. I love that relationship. And then we're back to this crap. And that's what makes me very upset. Uh, But to get away from that rage quit, I think, as people like to call it. uh, You know, the scene with Robin hopping all around, another positive. 
it was very Bronze Age, you know, um, where it's just one panel and you see him sort of in different ghost forms. Very Bronze Age. You've seen Robin do this in Batman Family and Spider-Man, like, where you always see, like, uh, different motions of him in, I don't know, whatever he's doing, like his acrobatics. Uh, you know, and also similar to Spider-Man, something I didn't really like is this whole ending where the criminal is narrating the end of the story and he says he has it all on film. Didn't this happen in Brand New Day? course i am talking to a batman audience uh the final image certainly has death in the family written all over it i know we all caught that funny how robin says uh, funny how batman says robin's hood will get him into trouble and i wonder if this is in regards to the the news about the man shooting the team with the hood because you know it's in self-defense and then we've got someone coming on news saying we need to ban all hoods so that's very interesting yeah, I'm sorry, I'm mentioning Spider-Man, I apologize. This issue, it just seems to have so much and too much going on. We've got the guy trying to keep his son out of foster care. Apparently, you know, he doesn't realize that him going to jail will probably send his son to foster care. The guy who ate his brother, hello, Greek myths. Then Batman and Robin, and all of this is supposed to go up neatly? Who knew? This issue seems like a confused knockoff that has no idea when it is supposed to have happened, and continuity I, yeah i guess i am a continuity nerd and i want it to make sense two out of five batterings so overall batman incorporated number one gets a total of four out of five batterings so we've been to our next issue birds of prey number nine what's up red pam what happened to you just a bad makeover green is the new red and I'm going to use my powers to avenge crimes against nature. We can do it together, Red. The two of us. And I'm betting Chlorogene will listen to me this time. Hey, sounds great. Except for the fact that you're a plant. Ivy, to be exact. Poison Ivy. Birds of Prey number nine. Gangland style. What, what? Writer Dwayne Sprzynski, Pencil Travel Foreman, Inker Jeff, I'm, I apologize, who it? Colorist Gabe L. Tabe. Gotham City, Anno Domini, that means in the year of our Lord, 1842. The streets are filled with evil people banded together in gangs to rob, rape, and kill. The stronger gang, a stronger gang than these is the Court of Owls. And moments later we see the streets filled with the blood of the evil men themselves. Gotham City, Night of the Owls. Katana, yes, I've learned from my mistakes. Katana and Dinah struggle on their feet through a park. Dinah asks if Katana thinks Ivy is dead, but Katana says her husband says she is not, and further adds that the talent chasing them does not have a soul. Speaking of the talent, here's Henry. Dinah unleashes the full force of her canary cry on him, but it does nothing, which surprises the heck out of her. His name is Henry Pollard, and he's a strong but silent type. He sees the Gotham streets as the same as in 1842, with vermin crawling over it, but only the dress has changed. Dinah and Katana struggle badly with the talon, when Dinah quickly narrates how they got to this point. As Dinah and Tatsu spar, and after Batgirl sparred with the Cassandra Kane talon, Batgirl notifies the birds that Batman has put out an all-call asking for help. In an attempt to assemble the team, Dinah and Katana go to get Ivy, but only find some plant-like skin on a pole, assuming the Talon has found her first. Back in the present, nothing seems to be taking good old Henry down, so the two birds flee to the Church of St. Francis, the legendary site of the first issue of this series. 
Dinah hopes that her knowledge of the layout will give them a tactical advantage. Katana asks why Dinah seemed to be holding back, and Dinah explains that the stuff with her husband's murder has brought up a lot of baggage. And hold that thought. Dinah recognizes the hum of Ev's Rolls Royce barreling towards the Talon. Ev hits Henry, again destroying part of the church with her car, and removes his mask to reveal a scary visage with which we are all familiar. Henry tries to strangle the strumpet tar- uh, Starlane, but Batgirl swings down in the nick of time and uses the church to create a pulley system to pull up the talon. Batgirl briefly explains about the talons before Henry's line snaps, and the birds run away to lure him to a nearby train station. The hope is that they can get him inside the meat car, which is chilled to a low degree. They do manage to get him in there, but he easily pops out, just like a toaster, not wanting to go back to sleep so soon. As the birds hold him down, a 70% human, 30% plant ivy appears with a grudge. A plant's ability to survive the extreme cold will allow her to hold the talent in the car until he is put out for good. Just don't forget to thaw her out, people. At the end of the issue, Ev explains that she was visiting an old friend, whoever that is, and Dinah mentions an old promise she made to Ivy that involves a machete and a plane. Next up, Amazon Coma. Alright, Birds of Prey number nine. I thought this was kind of interesting. Um, The story of the Talon wasn't as interesting as some of the other ones, but... The the one thing is that he doesn't seem to be an acrobat, and if he isn't an acrobat, um, well, where did he come from? Because so far, <laughs> really, all they've talked about is the talons that have come from yeah. the circus. Um, even the one that appeared in Batman and Robin, which again wasn't a acrobat, but it was around since the 1700s or whatever, even then they didn't really talk about where that one came from. So I'd like to know where the talons were coming from before Haley's Circus was around, because God knows Haley's Circus hasn't been around since the 1500s. So, where are these other talons coming from? This guy's much older than the other talons, too. That being said, it was kind of interesting to see the talon view these characters. It's interesting how he saw all of them in this garb from the 1800s, because quite honestly, it's it's interesting. Um, We do get the mention of Batgirl, she's fighting... Um, the talent on her own, but then she also makes an appearance herself, which actually puts her in three different books in the same diff- same night, which I found kind of interesting. Um, we saw her in Batgirl fighting her own. She ends up helping the Birds of Prey towards the end of their fight with this talent, and she's also somehow, as we'll get to later, in Red Hood and the Outlaws as well. Overall, definitely an interesting book. Quite honestly, this one really didn't seem like it was too interrupted by Night of Owls. Yeah, it's a one-off story, but for the most part, they're still focusing on some of the things that have happened in the previous story arc and still building to the next story arc with you know, everything having to do with Poison Ivy. I do find it interesting how, for some reason, that maybe this is an artist's choice? I don't know. Poison Ivy, since the beginning of this series, has been covered in green appears as if her entire skin is green. Mm-hmm. Um, she looks like as if she is a plant. No! That's what <laughs> it has appeared as since the series started. We see that piece what? of skin ripped off of her and hanging on a pole, and somehow now we find out that her clothes is just really green, and she's still a person under all that green stuff. I'm I, sorry, I... but that was different than what I realized, what I thought was in all those other books. No, I think you're. I think it is the skin. It's just that this is what has happened after Choke put that suggestion in there. She's just losing that part of her. It is like she's molting. I don't know. It's just to me, it's odd. 
uh, obviously can be viewed many different ways. I just think it's odd. Anyway, moving along, um, I'm looking forward to the next thing. Quite honestly, I'm enjoying Travel Foreman on this book. I think he's doing a good job. Travel Foreman, uh, I think, is a welcome addition to this book. Nothing against Jesus, but I think that Travel Foreman's art is it works. It's not nearly as uh, crazy and out there as what he was doing on Animal Man, but maybe this is something he's better suited for. Um, extremely detailed. Um, he draws things very well, in my opinion, and I think he's going to do a great job moving forward with Birds of Prey. Overall, I'm going to give this three and a half out of five bad ratings. Uh, mm, you know, <laughs> art can be a very influential thing, and, um, you know, in the comic book medium, obviously, it's like it's at least 50%, if not more, that can make or break a story. And um, it, it broke this one for me. I really didn't like the artwork. And I've read Animal Man uh, 1 and 2, uh, since the New 52, so I'm, I am familiar with Travel Foreman's work. But uh, I thought with Animal Man, the crazier that book was, it was a little bit more restrained, whereas this was more of a, uh, excuse me, more of a superhero title. And I thought that it was really, really lacking. I mean, I thought this was outright... I, I thought this was outright bad. Like, technically uh, insufficient. I'm not going to harp on it too much, although I, I, in my head I kind of want to. But uh, it really did... I mean, the story is fine. You know, it's... Um, the story is the same as, as all these other tie-on, tie-ins. You know, we get some sort of emo owl from the, the you know, from like, you know, uh, the pre-millennium days and like, they're coming back and says, I am this person who did this thing. And, um, I know it's, I'm not saying it's a bad story, but it's the same story. It's the same story, more or less in Nightwing. It's the same story in Batgirl. Same story in Catwoman. It's the same story here. And I know I'm missing at least one more. Oh, it's the same story, you know, in Dark Knight. Um, aka the Book of Lies. Oh. So it's like you know, I understand. I understand. This is the point of the owls. It's, this is what they do. But this is a long. These these are a lot of books we have to cover. Where we have to read the same thing over and over again. And I understand like you know it's different writers and they're kind of interpreting the same thing. But they're basically all doing the same story. And like you know, even if there are different writers interpreting it differently, but at the end of the day, it's the same. And so I just wasn't. I'm not gonna say it was as bad, but like I, by this point, I was really, really the art really did it in for me. I was like, you know what, this is, I'm not really enjoying this. I mean, even seeing like the Birds of Prey illustrated in different ways, you know, like different like uh, 19 era, like 1900 era ways, mm-hmm. that wasn't enough to to really kind of like, suck me in. Um, and another thing that I, that I've, I've had a problem with the Night of Owls since uh, last episode, it's turning out to basically be used to be like, one big kind of gore fest. Like the like the title page is, is like stuff that I'm I'm not really sure should be in a, in a Batman book. Although this isn't really a Batman book at all, even though they say it is. Um, and I'm not you know I'm not really offended or whatever, but it's, it's like you know, the whole point of the Nile Hours now is just turning into you know, like well you know they can't be killed, so let's just you know go all, let's just go all ham on them and you know like let's have them you know you know stab people in the nose and stuff and like it feels as though they're trying to go for a very very serious story, but the way they kind of fall down on that is that they're kind of showing glimpses of it, but it doesn't really feel that as though we're supposed to take that in or kind of feel anything from it. It feels very, very cheap, and I don't really appreciate cheap storytelling. Um, so, yeah, nah. This, n- no, no, no. <laughs> Two out of five batterings. Wow. 
we really are breaking up. <laughs> uh, after agreeing with Don so heavily on the last issue, I'm going to have to disagree now. Ooh. <laughs> In your face! <laughs> Betrayal! <laughs> Betrayal all around. <laughs> uh, I love the art, and I think it will take a bit of getting used to, and I think I preferred his work on Animal Man just because of the uh, just the craziness of it and I think that I, I definitely preferred the colouring on Animal on Animal Man it's a shame that well I don't believe that the colourist followed him over to this book which is a shame in my opinion but it uh, I definitely love the art I hope that Poison Ivy returns to the Poison Ivy that we've so far come to know in this new universe opposed to this apparently battle damaged poison ivy because <laughs> like I said in previous episodes I think she really benefited from the DCU makeover and I, her character was I, I think had one of the coolest designs in the DC universe and I hope we return to what we had come to expect uh, I don't really like the destruction of the church despite it being a cool sequence it's just it's not cool to destroy a church but whatever I know it's you know maybe it's a reference to Jesus leaving I don't know that might be a bit too meta um, okay. I also thought that the fact the Talon couldn't talk was pretty cool as well it was a new spin on the on the whole night of Al Singh, but by this point it's kind of like you know just small things differentiating them all but then I I don't want to take into account that we've already read you know however many of these to det- to detract from you know another issue that just cause it's got the same story I mean it is a tie in at the end of the day they're all going to be related but uh I'm definitely looking forward to seeing where this series goes It it kind of felt like it wasn't a necessary tie-in, but uh, at least we're going to get some story progression out of it. So, And all the birds are back together now, which is definitely a good mm-hmm. thing. So um, I, I did enjoy this issue, 4 out of 5 batterings. Yeah, definitely. I, I really liked it. I do, of course, agree with Don that, yes, we do have another Talon, and what does it add to the book? But what I like about the Talons, if they're done well, is they add something special to the the particular person or character that you know they're highlighting. And this was great. His main purpose was bringing them all back together. And I think my favorite... I guess my two favorite entrances were certainly Ivy, I think, is the best one, just coming and saying, did you think we were finished? And, and you know, going in there in the in the uh, car. And, yes, I certainly agree with Joe about, you know, destroying churches. That's, yeah, let's, let's stay away from sacrilege. But I do like just uh, the car and, you know, this is the second time she's basically destroyed a church, just harping back. Uh, to issue number one, and I just kind of like that. I enjoy that. I'm not going to talk about this uh, to a great extent. You can listen to my thoughts on Backroll to Oracle. Uh, number one, it's not the best time to be talking about personal business uh, when you're in the heat of things, especially with the talent. Dinah just goes off on her feelings about her husband's death and how this is thrown her for a loop. I mean, she could have just easily said that, yes, she's a little out of it because of recent events, not gone into a whole dramatic monologue. 
And really, I don't think it's believable that Dinah's thinking about her dead husband at all at this point. With a crazy talent on your trail, you're basically unable to defeat him. Gotham's under attack. I think your focus should be forced and will be forced on him. And I think that this was just a subtle, albeit inappropriate way to keep a connection with the previous storyline. Uh, Batman... This is very clear, just reading between the panels, obviously, that Batman really is leery about this team. Uh, and we've gotten a sense from this in The Dark Knight, but wow, the call did not go out to the Birds of Prey. And that's obviously very apparent since Batgirl was the one to connect everything for the birds. S- how strange that Dinah calls him the mythical Batman, and Ev talks about him like he is a larger-than-life figure. It-, it just really seems like there is no personal connection with him and this team at all, and I wonder if this uh, will change. I wonder where Ev's been. When did she get back from the undisclosed location in South Dakota? Because that was obviously not the friend's place that she was talking about. Was she talking about this girl that uh, we saw in issue? I don't know what issue that was. Five, maybe. And, you know, now we're going to pick up, like, everything is okay and go off to another mission on Ivy's behalf. Where's Choke? Kind of left that in the dust. How about the infiltrators? We're leaving that into the... Now we've got another thing. So I feel like we've got several threads. We've got this issue thrown in. I I do have a problem with that, hoping that that comes back. Uh, Two things about the art. I like that when we see the birds through Henry's eyes, he sees them as if they were back in 1842. I also like that this talent doesn't talk at all, which is a complete departure (coughs) from all the talents that we have seen. He just really seems like the type that wants to get the job done. All the other ones have to be talk, talk, talking. Hey man, this is why I've got a grudge against you. You know, your ancestor, blah, 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 blah. But he just wants to go out there and kill, basically. Uh, Yes, he has a self-righteous attitude, but he's not filled, I think with hubris like other talents are the art was good uh it took me a little while to get used to it and i think it's it's gonna take me another issue to get used to him uh and i certainly will miss those little pink noses by jesus Saez. i just always thought they were really cute um let's see in my review i give it a 9.5 i give this a 4.25 uh, i guess i'll just round that down to a four out of five batarangs all right, so Birds of Prey number nine gets a total of three and a half out of five batarangs. Let's move into our next book, Batman the Dark Knight number nine. This isn't the time for games. Now untie me. It's no game. You're out of control. You don't know what you're talking about. That gas has affected you more than you think. I told you, I can handle it. You can't! You're not even afraid to kill. I'll be back for you as soon as I can. Robin. It's hard for me to say this, but you did the right thing. I was out of control, and you've made me see that. I did what I had to. What now? I've got to stop the Scarecrow. I can help you. I know him. But... Don't worry. You'll be the boss on this one. You almost fooled me. Betrayal! Batman the Betrayal number nine. Written by Jed <laughs> Winnick. <laughs> oh my god. Illustrated by David Finch. Uh, okay. This issue is uh, part... Uh, I, I, uh, a companion to Batman number nine and part clip show. Years ago, 
we see yet another kid in Haley's Circus being tortured because the, that's how the Owls ro- the, the Owls the Owls roll. And uh, 26 years later, we see him turn into a uh, one of the Talons, although he's he's burned all over. Um, they say, you know, like, oh, you're another one of our Talons, you know, who's been doing this for too long, and you know, set your old, we got the fire, yeah. So uh, get ready for that, um, and no benefits. And he's, he's he's going to be replaced by someone from Haley Circus. So he he uh, spies on one performance by uh, one group called the Flying Graysons. <laughs> And um, so he's uh, a bit intimidated and feels fear for the first time. And the second time he feels fear is when he goes up against Batman a few years later. So um, he's ashamed, and the owls uh, make him feel, you know, they say, you know, you're bad and you should feel bad, so they bury him alive. Uh, But then again, you know, once they uh, start their recent siege on Gotham, they bring him back out of his sleep so he can kill Lincoln March. Unfortunately, Lincoln March is not your everyday mayoral candidate and has... uh, is it a stun gun or is it a taser? It's a stun gun, I suppose, and it shocks him. Uh, he also has a gun, and um, Batman bursts through the door, and the talent's like, whoa, man, it's Batman, and he gets his head blown off. But uh, as we see that we didn't see in Batman number nine, he leaps and attacks Batman, and uh, Batman says, well, I've beaten a lot of you guys before, and uh, manages to uh, fend him off and uh, knock him outside the building. And he just splurges into millions of pieces. Um, we then see a very tertiary scene of Batman with uh, the three, uh, you know, good guy Robins, Dick Grayson, Damian Wayne, and Tim Drake in a really ridiculous costume. Oh, wait, that's his Teen Titans costume. And um, we end with the Talon in the sewer feeling cold, but he's lost his fear. Next, the Scarecrow returns! Alright, Batman the Dark Knight number nine. I know that there's going to be a lot to say about this issue, specifically because of these words. The solicitation for Batman the Dark Knight, which was released three months ago, uh, clearly states, Night of Owls continues here. Guest writer Judd Winnick joins David Finch on the return of Red Robin. Red Robin is back in Gotham City just in time to face off against Talon and the Court of Owls. To which Red Robin's entire role in the book is appearing on the cover and appearing in the second-to-last page in the issue right before Talon, the Talon is running through the, the sewers. Um, yeah, Red Robin returns to Gotham City. He also appears to fly, too. But uh, Anyway, that aside, there's still a lot of crap that happens in this book. And when I say <laughs> crap, I mean crap. Um, you know, it, it was fine to see the, the Talon story again, because... I think they're interesting to hear their stories. We can clearly figure out that this this town was the town right before William Cobb, but there's a whole big problem with this, and I think, I don't know that, I think this is going to be proof of how well Judd Winnick is actually communicating with these other writers, because, okay, William Cobb was the talent that was facing Batman underneath Gotham City, and he failed, and somehow he made it back inside of the sewers uh, through and into the Batcave and that's what happened he was the one who was fighting Batman okay so clearly that character William Cobb is not he, he was brought back but the the talent that was before him was this talent the talent that's featured in this story because he's old enough to or he, he has he's only been around for or he was around up until the point where Batman was, you know, coming to be Batman, and Dick Grayson 
and the Graysons were in Gotham City as well. So, that being said, it wasn't that long ago, you know, maybe 15 years ago or 10 years ago, or however you want to do the math, probably 10 years ago that this talent was around. That being said, um, okay, that's fine, but then what was the purpose of bringing a person who is a talent, probably two talents before this character back, just because this guy saw a giant bat, he's... They, they're convinced that they need to put him under and they need to uh, bring back a talent that was around before. That didn't make any sense. Uh, the next thing that didn't make any sense. It is great that uh, you know they wanted to expand on what happened in, uh, in Batman number 9 with the whole Lincoln March thing, but nothing really got expanded except for the fact that we find out the talent really didn't die when he got shot in the head and that he came back to life almost immediately after. But if I remember correctly... In Batman number nine, they didn't show any of this, but I don't remember the issue ending with Lincoln March just telling Batman what to do. Then again, it's been three weeks, and I guess I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's not how the ending issue er, the the issue ended. So they're changing the ending of Batman nine by having this happen in Batman the Dark Knight number nine. Um, he he hits the ground, and we see the splorch across the ground. One, what does splorch mean? I know what splat means. I don't know what splorch means. And the fact is, there's green stuff and red stuff spread all over the place. But then, momentarily, we see the guy in the sewer. He clearly is not Clayface and reanimates himself into one bean. So what splorched all over the place if he escaped into the sewers? Yes, he's he's battered and bloodied while he's in the sewers. And clearly, they're hinting at that th this talent could appear later on down the road as he is not dead, and he's the only Talon out of all the books who hasn't died or been incapacitated. Um, the other thing that really bothers me is at the very end of the book, we have the comment from editorial that says, to follow what happens to Lincoln, March, and Batman, pick up number nine. <laughs> but why would I follow what happens in to Lincoln, March, and Batman if that already happened two weeks before this? The Adventures one, of Lincoln, March, he does. Yeah, well, one... We already know what happens to him two weeks before. Fine. You didn't read Batman number nine. That's fine. But if you read Batman number nine, and then after you read this, you're just going to be thinking to yourself, wait, what actually happened here? Did Batman get into a fight with this talent and then throw him out a window? Or did he sit there and have a long, heartfelt conversation with Lincoln March? And quite honestly, I don't know that anybody wants to tell anybody to read Batman the Dark Knight because everyone's been saying, oh yeah, it's the story of Tim Drake coming back and Tim Drake and Red Robin and Tim Drake and Red Robin. One page. One freaking page. Not even a page. Half a page in one panel. And no dialogue. No dialogue, and he hovers like Superman. I'm going to give this... Uh, as much as I would love to give it a higher score because I actually enjoyed the talent in this book um, the fact that it's not Tim Drake and I just had so many issues I'm going to give this 2 out of 5 because I'm editing this I, I actually could swear at the storm and you know cut it all out but I'm not going to because this is not really worth the time just I mean I'm not going to spend too much whining over the fact that you know this issue promised me my Tim Drake and it didn't that's still really annoying, but this is one thing what, 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 what pissed me off about this comic book was that it was a clip show, you know? Batman number 9 was great, and I read that half a month ago, and we reviewed that half a month ago. 
I don't care about, you know, this goofy circus talent. I mean, I mean, Dustin, Dustin does, you know, and that's cool. He does. I personally don't. When you accompany it with bad art, where it looks like the guy just disintegrates after falling from a building, and then you show him completely intact in a sewer that for some reason has a skull in it. I mean, like, there are sewers that, you know, that are large that the Teenage Mutant Turtles run through, and there are sewers that are, like, in a dystopian future. You know, neither belong in comic books, but, like, you know, one makes less sense than the other. And it's just... I, I, I have no words. This sucked. One out of five batterings. I thought that the Tim Drake that we got in this book was so bad that it was hilarious. Because <laughs> it, it was so ridiculous being hyped up to be the return of Tim Drake in the Batman universe and then to have that. It <laughs> it was like when everyone was asking where Cassandra Kane was and then someone just went, huh? Oh, well, yeah, she's around. Like that in one of the uh, Return of Bruce Wayne issues. It, uh... Oh, the, actual <laughs> the actual story I thought was uh, fairly interesting because I, I do like the ties between comic the comics. It kind of makes it feel more worthwhile, um, especially with all the ties to... Uh, I mean, it was Batman number 9. It was the Night of the Owl storyline. It, it didn't add much, but it kind of followed up the question that we were all asking about. Hey, he got shot in the head... You know, I didn't think he would he could die, and clearly he didn't. So it was it was good that it answered that, but uh, it didn't really add anything to the scene. It's kind of moved it on a little bit further. The um, the art I thought was usual Finch, just kind of detailed but inconsistent, and not in the Chris Burnham way that I like. But uh, overall, it was. Like it was, a, it was a bit like a lot of the other issues. It was a decent tie-in, but not that good of an issue. So I'll give it two and a half out of five batterings. It's funny because I heard Donovan talking about the lies, and I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know it was associated with um, the solicitation. I thought it was what was inside, really. Um, I, I guess I'll get to that. Another circus talent. I I don't know. I just don't see like this. I understand the connection. Don't get me wrong, but why can't they be? I guess more varied. Weird that Batman encountered this talent before. Uh, frankly, I I don't necessarily agree with that. You'd think that given Batman's intelligence and his computer, that he would recognize what uh, this thing was when he first encountered them. But I guess not. He attract. But the he did. No, I said, I, I'm sorry. I said, I said, you think. Oh, uh, the interaction with Lincoln March I felt was completely different from what we had seen before. The town did not stab him. The town did not stab him, but actually threw the knife at the same time that Lincoln shot him. So I thought that was a lie. And you know, then the town was taken out. Uh, but not he didn't see Batman before he fell. You know, Batman sort of opened the door. So that was one of the <laughs> lies. Um, yes, I did catch that whole thing where, hey, guess what? Uh, Red Robin's on the cover, but he only is in that one panel. And that totally reminds me of the time that Barbara Gordon basically appears in one panel, but it says that she appears. Huh. Um, I just thought that the issue was false. False and useless. The town gives a brief history of himself, but he doesn't really answer the question that seems most important. Why did he become slow and constantly start to make mistakes? That's kind of what I want to know. He keeps talking about it, but how that happened? 
It was easy to read, I thought, but, you know, nothing really adds up or makes sense in light of all of the other issues. And unfortunately, it seems that our experience with this particular talent is not over. Two out of five batterings. All right, so that's going to give Batman the Dark Knight, number nine, a total of two out of five batterings. Moving to our next book, Red Hood and the Outlaws, number nine. On my planet, we have a name for those who do such terrible things. You are a... Uh, Red Hood and the Outlaws number 9 written by Scott Blobdell with art by Kenneth Rockefeller. Jason and the gang are still in Gotham after deciding to rescue Mr. Freeze but Jason decides to tackle the problem alone seeing as it's his city so he sends Roy and Starfire off to rescue as many civilians as they can from the chaos. Jason breaks up the fight between the Talon and Mr. Freeze, but Freeze is too proud to be rescued and attacks Jason. The Talon, the Talon escapes in the confusion, but Jason chases after him. The Talon ch- gains the upper hand in a, their fight, but Jason is rescued by Roy. Once again the Talon escapes, and once again Jason pursues, just as Roy and Sapphire go to deal with Mr. Freeze. Bedford chases the Talon down to an old plot for Haley Circus, where they have a heart-to-heart remove their helmets, look deep into each other's eyes and they empathise with each other and then Jason shoots the talent in the face. What started as a rescue ends as a takedown as Roy knocks out Mr. Freeze with an electric arrow. Later at the GCPD rooftop, Red Hood runs into Batgirl where he takes the credit for taking down Freeze and Barbara states he d- her dislike for him. Next issue, something else happens. Hmm? <laughs> Alright, Red Hood and the Outlaws... Number nine. This was uh, kind of interesting. It's almost, it's almost as I mean, it's perfect that you read the annual after Red Hood and the Outlaws number nine because there's things that happen in the annual that plays into these books actually working in succession. Mm-hmm. That being said, um, there was not a whole lot that actually happened. I mean, we we kind of get back to you know. Okay, so some of the talons are just crazed and have the necessity to kill, and then there's other talons that have this whole other thought process about you know how they came to be who they are, such as the the, the talon that appeared in Batgirl, such as the talon that appeared in um, Catwoman with you know his thing was all about honor, um, mm-hmm. and then we have this talon who again is almost exactly like the talon that was in Batgirl where they don't necessarily want to be a Talon. They felt like they were doing what they needed to, but they realized that this isn't what they want to do anymore, and they're okay with dying because it's on their own terms. Um, I don't know if I should admire that or what, but, I mean, obviously we're supposed to be having a sympathy vote for some of these Talons. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but um, what I will say is I thought it was interesting. I also found it interesting how... This may sound odd, but the guy looked a little Asian. Maybe I'm wrong, but he did look a little Asian. And not yeah, to I'm say pretty that sure he was. His name was like Zhao. Yeah. So that being said, I mean that's not to say that you can't be um, you can't be Asian and live in America. <laughs> but it's just odd how every single one of these talents have been nothing related to any anybody, but they've been white. And I assume that was because it was like some thing that the Court of Owls had to have. It was an American thing? Yeah, they had to be American or they had to be specifically white like the original Americans 
in you know everything that they've shown makes it appear as if everyone is white not you know any kind of minority whatsoever um but then again i guess you know whatever it, it's not a big deal it's just it was interesting to see that um i think the whole mr freeze thing was kind of it, 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 i mean they made it make sense as to, as to why they were going after mr freeze and it, as i said it does play into a lot of what happens with the batman annual but for the most part there really wasn't a necessity for freeze other than to just have a reason for red hood to be saving somebody who normally would not have or well red hood's saving mr freeze but really he's not really saving mr freeze he's just making sure that the talent is taken care of if red hood was saving anybody else on that list except for maybe penguin he might have had a problem with the fact that he was saving somebody because he would have been coming across as a hero instead of a villain, which is all he's been since the New 52. That being said, um, I didn't think it was a bad issue. I actually liked the fact that the Talon wanted to, uh, to die on his own terms. Um, am I looking forward to next issue? Not particularly, because I don't really want to see Starfire in the spaceship that makes her, you know, guardian of the galaxy or however <laughs> But I thought this was a good issue. Four out of five batterings. Uh, can somebody tell me, please, what uh, did they say? Why they're after Mister Freeze, or by that by that matter, Penguin? Yeah, because uh, Mister Freeze had a serum that was able was able to bring the Talons back from their uh, cold sleep. Mm -hmm. Okay, that that makes sense. That changed my entire opinion on the story. No, it doesn't. Um, I, mean, I, I, I didn't think the story was actually bad. Um, I thought the art was pretty decent. Uh, this is a very, very straightforward story, and you know, it's it focuses still more on Jason, which is fine because Bob Dell, for, for all of his uh, murderous faults, he does do Jason very well. I think. I didn't, I didn't dislike the story, but I didn't. You know, I wasn't all over it either. It was it was what it was. You know, you got you get the character beats with uh, Corey and uh, Roy. You get more of the fact that the town is in the circus again. You know, <laughs> I was under the impression that like the Haley Circus was a one done thing, but apparently Haley Circus, you know, is to the Night of Owls what McDonald's is to Heartburn. I mean, I, I don't. I guess it's another change. That I just have to, you know, put my big boy pants on and get used to. I don't know the fact that Haley Circus is, you know, this, this basically this terrorist group. I, whatever. I don't like it. The, the the ending scene I found kind of funny with uh, Jason and Barbara uh, interacting, and you know because I'm, I'm I'm a continuity snot. This is the first time I've seen them really interact since uh, I think because it's that, that that one Gotham Knights story where it's sort of like a flashback where uh, Oracle was thinking about uh, when she was back when she met Jason Todd. There's one line that I find questionable where she says, uh, "You have two seconds to give me one reason why I don't toss you off this rooftop um, because you don't kill." <laughs> that's one but um didn't she and, toss her talent off the rooftop yeah I guess I guess Babs is, is you know you know a killer that that Babs <laughs> uh, the the red in her hair is blood um although when she says you know like don't think this is absolves you of every other insane act you've ever committed Red Hood what what, what, what do you do <laughs> like I mean I know that he's killed people like you know he took control of the mobs or whatever but like let's not put this guy over like, like in terms of the Joker right you know come on let's not don't, I don't know, don't, it, dictate your terms a lot more clearer, uh, is what I'm saying. Um, but this wasn't a bad issue. 
Um, I didn't hate it, and I didn't really love it either. I'll give it more real two and a half out of five better ranks. Uh, I thought this issue, again, was another issue that was decent as a tie-in, and like I said with Catwoman, is the second issue where is uh, another one of those issues where the uh, the writer tries to make the character a sympathetic one. On the other hand, this book is really dialogue-heavy, and it's not from conversation, but it's all from like internal narration. And the problem is that 90% of it feels forced and just not interesting. I also felt that Mr. Freeze was written ridiculously. I know he's not a good guy, but his attacks were completely unprovoked. Even if he was like too proud to be rescued or whatever his deal was, they were... Yeah, he, he didn't need to... Um, just out and out attack even when he's like he's being attacked by a, a talent and he's like I know I'm going to stop what I'm doing right now to attack someone else <laughs> overall I thought it was a pretty exciting issue I guess it was quite action heavy and I I genuinely laughed in a few bits I also thought that the continuity ties to Batgirl number 9 were really good so 3 out of 5 batterings I like the connection between Gotham and himself. I think that, that Jason voices at the beginning and how he sort of understands her. I, I I thought that was cool. Why does Jason say they aren't together, as in uh, the team, they aren't together, when before it was practically a love fest with him saying that, you know, they are the best and a team? How That doesn't make a lot of sense. Oh, boy. Just reading this one issue really shows how much... Jason hates Batman, and it's a little over the top, a little too much there. What are those things called? Angry shippers? Or angry slash fic? I don't remember. Angry slashers. Yeah. Um, it was interesting, exactly. having Freeze serving the court. This, I think, becomes better, better, more apparent in... The annual, which I, I just think it shows him in a better light than this particular issue does. I liked the scene where the Talon is doing acrobatics, and the image goes back and forth between the Talon and the Talon as a child. Yes, again, we have a circus child, I or a circus Talon. Certainly agree 100% with Donovan. I find it a little strange that Jason and the Talon just are having a casual conversation in an alley. Hello, I do that with a a mortal enemy every day too I can see that we are supposed to sympathize with this talent but it doesn't really come off as well as the Batgirl talent did and in fact this one just feels forced as a child I was forged into a weapon my every thought and deed dictated by the court this time I want to say in my execution yeah it doesn't really hit me as much as the Cassandra Kane talent did in Batgirl number 9 I did <laughs> like the interaction between Batgirl and Jason you know I, I think that this is probably the most attractive Babs that I have seen because there's an issue in her own book so that was great uh, but despite the blue eyes because hey guess what people she has green eyes but I guess we're going back to the the uh, Silver Age there. 1.5 out of 5 batterings. Alright Red Hood and the Outlaws number 9 gets a total of 3 out of 5 batterings. Alright so let's get into our next book Nightwing number 9. <laughs> Beard! You did it to me again! And I don't care how many years you trained as Robin and then Nightwing. One of these days, you're mine, chum. I don't doubt it, Lagoon Boy. Nightwing number 9, written by Kyle Higgins, art by Eddie Barrows. The issue starts off kind of revealing more of the backstory that we heard in the last issue. Um, with William Cobb telling the story of his, uh, 
his love affair with Amelia Crown. Um, he actually has a meeting with uh, her father, and her father basically explains that everything is black and white, and he's not on the side of the light. Um, and because of that, he can never actually be with Amelia. Um, as time progresses, um, we find we, we we jump back to the future, or well, I should say into the future, but present time where Nightwing is riddled with the knives and he's protecting the mayor. He asks them if there's a panic room, um, and in turn, they say there's a vault. He tells them to lock them in the, themselves into the vault, and Nightwing takes the uh, Talon and actually throws him out the window, and they tumble towards the ground. Nightwing uh, throws the Talon into a car, and Nightwing softly, but not really softly, lands onto the ground into the snow. The Talon regenerates himself, cracks his bones back into place, and uh, comes at Nightwing. Meanwhile, we cut back to the past story where we find out that Amelia Crown is actually pregnant with William Cobb's uh, son, and they, they, they find out, her father finds out, and in turn decides that there's no way that they can be together, and they quickly, uh, she quickly gets married off to a second cousin, and she has the son, and everyone is under the assumption that it is this new person. The entire time, William Cobb is, you know, getting pretty ticked about this. Cut back to present time, where Nightwing and the Talon are fighting each other back and forth, saying a number of things, and Nightwing actually is on his way down to the subway when he passes out because he's been losing so much blood. Talon removes his mask and explains to him that the whole reason that he's upset with Dick Grayson is because Dick Grayson could have been and was really brought up to be the greatest talent of all time. We cut back to the past where a man approaches William and asks him if he's interested in, you know, becoming something within the gray area, per se. He becomes uh, a talon for the Court of Owls and, and is very good at what he does. One day, he decides that uh, he's going to kidnap the boy, that is his son, from the Crown Residence and gives it to Nathaniel and says, I want you to prepare this person for the legacy of the Court of Owls. This is my son, the Grey Son of Gotham. Um, so, ultimately, this is, in fact, Dick's father, who is this boy that uh, William Cobb kidnapped from the Crown family. But, ultimately, after he says this, he explains to him, you were supposed to be the, the best talent ever because you were brought up to be the best talent. Uh, Nightwing then discloses the information of the reason why he came down to the subway was actually because he knows that there's pipes down there that are insulated um, with liquid nitrogen. He throws something up there, the liquid nitrogen scorches down and freezes, very, starts to slow down the body of uh, William Cobb. At that point, it freezes to the point where William Cobb is uh, tied up by Dick Grayson and Dick Grayson clearly states, I'll tell you what I'll embrace, William. What I embrace is that destinies don't exist. Next up, the Tomorrow People. <laughs> Alright, Nightwing number nine. This was an interesting issue. Again, I think when we delve into the history of Dick Grayson and we delve into the history of Gotham and how it relates, and really they're explaining the entire, you know, how Dick Grayson 
was really supposed to be in line for the Court of Owls and become a Talon. And it makes sense. And quite honestly, it gives a much better explanation of Dick Grayson's involvement with Gotham City without going crazy and making it into something that it's really not. What I, and I, what I mean by that is, you know, Dick Grayson has always just been this boy whose parents were in the circus. The circus, you know, this horrible thing happened at the circus while they were in Gotham City, and that's the extent of it. But they get, this gives this in, this this issue and the previous issue gives this entire whole new you know background to Dick Grayson and his involvement with uh, Gotham City. And in turn, it really does start to resonate that theory that Kyle Higgins has mentioned in in interviews about the you know he is the Prince of Gotham. Now the question is, why is he the actual Prince of Gotham? Is it because he discovers that he's you know he is a crown and that's the case, and the crowns are a very powerful family within Gotham City right now, or is it because of his involvement with William Cobb and the and the Court of Owls? Um, that's obviously going to be delved into into future issues, but um, Eddie Barrow's art in this issue is great. Didn't seem rushed, uh, in my opinion. The the story, I mean, the history part, of course, the history, it's something I love, and I think it was done great. And really the whole, this is the gray son of Gotham, that entire bit was just really good because the whole thing was, you know, uh, Crown states to William Cobb, you know, the city's black and white. That's all there is. There's no, nothing in between. There's just black and white. And, you know, basically the name Grayson comes from Gray Sun. So I thought that was really cool. I thought that played off very well. Um, overall, I thought this was a great issue. Four out of five batterings. I don't know, man. Um, <laughs> like, like, this wasn't a bad issue, but again, it's sort of like my personal preferences with how they're kind of how the Nine of Hours is really, really changing, like, the background of Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson specifically. Um, and I know that, I, I suppose that, like, uh, if William Cobb is his great, is this his great-grandfather or his great-great-grandfather? It's his great-grandfather. Great-grandfather. Okay, so, like, alright. So, I guess like, that, 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 that is in distance. It's, yeah, there's, like, two generations it's, in between. It's father's grandfather. Yeah. Okay. Or even still, though, I mean, the, the, the little things kind of like kind of get to me. I mean, I will say Eddie Barrow's art is great. In fact, I'm always disappointed when he doesn't finish the entire issue. Um, I mean, he does. He still kind of does that, you know, that really dull mannequin-looking bug eye kind of thing. But whatever. I mean, the rest of his, you know, his models, and I love. He's one of my favorite Nightwing artists right now. I, I, he's just he's one of the best. He really makes that costume look great. Um, but like the whole. The fact that that, that uh, Dick Grayson's origins kind of stem from Gotham, um, I guess it's not that bad of a thing. It's just you know, it's, it's not something I'm used to, and not something I'm really ready for, I suppose. Uh, and the Grayson of Gotham, I kind of read that the first time. And I was like, oh man, nah, jeez. But I mean, I've read it a couple times since then, and I'm still saying that. But <laughs> it's not that bad a thing, I suppose. It really is just sort of you know, you know, Destiny is what you make it. I just don't like the idea that Haley Circus is this big terrorist. You know, I don't know. Uh, Nine of Owls sort of like origin place, and that Dick Grayson, you know, was sort of ideally made. He's not, you know, he wasn't, you know, a naturally born uh, acrobat. He was, you know, in, indirectly trained to become an assassin. Like, I, I don't really like that idea. So, like, you know, as good as this issue was, it kind of, that kind of, what it was saying didn't really gel with me. So I'll give it three out of five batterings. Um, I. Also, I guess I agree uh, more with Don on this one. I thought it was a, a decent issue, and um, 
overall I enjoyed it but there were things I think it's a well written issue but I it's personal preference wise I, I don't really like the history elements so like especially played up so much as to where we're having these flashbacks and stuff and like half the book is kind of set in the past I, I like sort of progression and moving forward opposed to constantly looking back and I know it like it flips between the two and it, it aids the story going forward but I always find it a bit um, a bit jarring and a bit like you know a, a, like it's holding back on something I, I thought the the art was great I, I, I think the um, what I feel about this is we've kind of been delving on this quite a lot recently especially with Dick Grayson's involvement and it's paying off I guess I mean what's happening and how he's related to the hours and I think that works and is it's a good story but opposed to Batman where you know Batman's linked to it but there's always something moving forward whereas Nightwing feels like the last three issues have been all on the same thing so I'm looking forward to hopefully moving on from this a bit even if it's relating to at least having like another goal to get to even if he's, you know, this is still a theme in the book. Because I think it is a decent theme. Um, I thought the... I didn't mind the grey sun thing, but I didn't really buy the whole Gotham is black and white, you're either this or not. I mean, I guess from a... It's that guy's perspective, but... it, it That felt quite... F- not really forced, but there was, there was something that felt a bit off to me, and there was something that... It just maybe felt a bit convenient just having that, and then, like you know how everything kind of falls into place in the grey sun and that. But I did think it was a decent issue, and I enjoyed it. So three and a half out of five batterings. And I'm going to more side with Dustin on this issue. I think that I mean throughout the entire run of Night of the Owls, we've been given this owl, and then given you know some history and some they've they've dived dove into more deeply than others. Some have worked out well, some have not, but I think the one in Nightwing has been the best so far, and the one that I feel like um, has the strongest connection to the hero's book and the hero within the book. Um, I, I like this guy, this William, and it's it's a tragic story, but I really feel for him. It's not like a fake feeling, like they, they're forcing him on you. They want you to feel for him, but you really don't. You really do. It's a tragic story. He's losing the woman he loved, and wow, yeah, I did feel bad for him. It's interesting that this talent is the only one that had a double issue. Of course, that will change now with... Um, the Dark Knight, because I guess we'll be seeing him again. It's also interesting that this town began in Batman, but then slowly made his way to confront Nightwing, so that's pretty cool. I, I go back and forth on this, because I, I think it would make sense for Batman to fight him, but he is Dick's relative, and they are so similar character-wise, so I think it does work out here. And this Talon, he does boast to being the best. Some do that, some know that they're not the best, but does Dick really deserve to fight him? Because Batman's sort of the lead character. So those are sort of two sides to that issue. Should he be fighting Batman or should he be fighting his descendant? I really like the art. I especially love the fight in the snow and sort of the Starman um, from JSA way back when. Uh, effect that it has on their costumes. Kind of have these white dots there. But wait a minute, shouldn't the talent be slowed down by the cold even before the liquid nitrogen? That was one of the questions I had. 
Still, I question the owl's motives and the talons, for that matter. You know, how are they shaping the future, and why? You know, why are they cleaning up Gotham? This is sort of the one big thing that, that I would really like to know, but perhaps it's a, a dumb question to ask. I don't know. Uh, did William kill the entire Crown family, including Amelia? That was another question that I had. But, I don't know, best backstory I think that we've seen from the talent so far, I give this 4 out of 5 batterings. Alright, so overall, Nightwing gets a total of 3.5 out of 5 batterings. Let's move into our final book, the Batman Annual number 1. My name is Dr. Victor Freeze. I am recording what I pray will be mankind's first step toward immortality. Behind me you see the CC-100 a cryogenic freezing chamber of my own design. I created it for the express purpose of freezing subjects stricken with inoperable ailments. Subjects like my own beloved wife, Nora. Once a remedy has been found... Open this door! Open it now! Get away from that equipment! Shut this stuff down! Stop! This is my experiment! Your unauthorized experiment I ordered funding suspended weeks ago! I'm already three million in debt, thanks to you. You can't stop it now. My wife is in there. So bring her out. You can't interrupt the process now. Open it. It's her only chance. This is my equipment. Mine. I have every legal right to use it or not use it as I see fit. I say this project ends now. No! Stay away from her. Murder! Victor... Sorry. I lost my temper. It doesn't have to come to this. We can talk. Get out! Get out! Nora! Nora! My God. Yes. It would move me to tears if I still had tears to shed. Batman Annual Number 1, written by Scott Snyder and James Tinian, art by Jason Fabick. This is the story of Mr. Freeze. We start off over 30 years ago in Lowell, Nebraska, where Victor Fries is running across the snow with his mother and uh, telling his mother they need to hurry up because they're going to be late to the snowman contest. Um, as they're talking about how to decorate the snowman, uh, Victor Fries looks back and notices his mother is missing goes back and finds that she's actually fallen through the ice. We then cut to current time, where Victor Fries is in Arkham Asylum being talked to by a psychologist. Um, at at uh, some point, the psychologist brings up Nora, and Fries gets very defensive and says, "We don't. We're not, I'm not going to talk about further. I don't like the way you're questioning." They, he then proceeds to ask the psychologist what time it is, and says he wants his crayon, wants the the psychiatrist crayon. After the psychiatrist says there's no way you can actually use this as a weapon, uh, Fries uh, actually walks up to the psychiatrist and snaps his neck and grabs the crayon. He then goes up into the raft or up into a panel in the ceiling and uses the crayon as a conductor to change the temperature to sub-zero degrees, 100, 100 degrees sub-zero. Um, we then cut to the guard, guard area where uh, Dr. Arkham comes in and a guard is stating that Freeze is turning down the entire temperature inside the entire place. 
Um, as this is happening, some guards go to uh, apprehend Freeze as he's still in his cell. Freeze automatically freezes them instantaneously and drinks up some kind of liquid coming out of the thing. We can only assume it's liquid nitrogen. Um, a n number of inmates are complaining that they can't feel their toes, and as he's walking down the hall, he comes across a number of other guards who say, put your hands up in the air, you need to surrender. Freeze then spits out that liquid inside their faces and freezes them. Meanwhile, Freeze, who snapped the finger off a guard who initially came into his cell, uses it to get into a room to get his free suit. Meanwhile, outside, there's a truck that shows up just in time for uh, Freeze to get out of Arkham, and then moments later, crashes the truck into uh, the Iceberg Casino. Freeze and the Penguin have a kind of an argument, but kind of a, more of a discussion about how this was all planned from the get-go. Uh, Penguin arranged this. Um, Freeze explains the reason why he crashed is because he wants to make sure it looks legitimate that he came to the Iceberg Casino to, you know, rob Penguin instead of um, trying to get something from Penguin. Well, in fact, Mr. Freeze is there because he needs his weapons, so that's exactly what he gets. He gets his weapons, freezes some of Penguin's guards to make it look real, and gets out of Dodge. We then cut to uh, six years ago, where we find out that Freeze was actually working for uh, Bruce Wayne and Lucius Fox at Wayne Tower Laboratories doing research on cryogenics. Um, he was doing a number of research... Uh, a, a number of different types of research, but in the middle of it, um, what ends up happening is Lucius Fox explains what Freeze is doing, and Bruce Wayne says, I'm sorry, this isn't what we are supposed to be doing anymore. We're supposed to be getting away from this and getting into fields like organ vitrification, um, which is, you know, preserving organs for a longer period of time so they can be used for people who need specific organs. Freeze gets very uh, kind of upset about this and in turn um, reveals that one of the frozen bodies that he has is in fact his lovely Nora. We then cut to present time where Freeze is actually in that laboratory and he finds out that Nora is not there. Uh, meanwhile, Nightwing and Damien show up to take care of Freeze. Freeze says, this has nothing to do with you. You need to get out of here. After Freeze freezes... Um, certain certain aspects of Nightwing and da Damien. Uh, Bruce Wayne's voice appears and says, come up to the penthouse, that's where you'll find me, that's where you can get your revenge. Damien and Nightwing leave him to go up to the penthouse. Freeze gets up to the penthouse and then we cut back to the past. We find out um, that Freeze is working back in the past. Freeze is working on Nor bringing Nora back and he he came up with a new compound to bring someone back, and as he's doing this, um, Bruce Wayne approaches him and says, listen, you're not supposed to be doing this, we told you to stop doing this, and now you're doing all of these things that, you know, you're doing all these private experiments after we shut your project down. Um, Freeze then continues to say, um, you know, this is, this is my love, this is my life, this is everything that I do is because of her, um, you can't take her away from me. Bruce Wayne then proceeds to say, listen, I've called the authorities, she's staying and you're going. We then have uh, Fries who throws a chair at Bruce Wayne and it hits a number of containers of liquid nitrogen and actually blasts 
freeze in the face. We then cut to a hospital where Fries is hooked up to a number of tubes, and as he's opening his eyes, there's a number of doctors that are saying that uh, his body is at you know sub-zero temperatures, and there's no way that he should possibly be alive, but he is. Um, they give him a pair of goggles to wear, and he starts freaking out, saying, uh, "You know, Bruce Wayne, I'm coming for you." Uh, back at the penthouse, he finds Nor Fries's body. Batman bursts into the room and says, "Listen, it's over, Fries." Nora's not going with you. After they have a small fight, what ends up happening is Batman reveals that he finds out exactly who Nora is, and has and Nora is not Fry's Fry's or Freeze's wife. Um, in fact, he finds out that, or he reveals that Nora is actually Nora Fields, and she was born in 1943. She was diagnosed with an incurable heart condition when she was 23 years old, and she never graduated or she just graduated from college before she was put into an experimental treatment where she would basically be frozen and then hopefully sometime in the future she would be able to be awakened as they had a cure for her condition. Freeze then says, listen, just because I've never met her doesn't mean I don't love her. Uh, Batman states that, well, listen, the reality is you don't love her, you love the idea of her, and if she was to come back, you, she wouldn't even have any idea who you are, and it would be completely different than what it is now. Batman, while they're talking, actually puts a compound into Freeze, that same compound that brought the owls back for the Court of Owls, and uh, we then find out that we cut back to 30 years, well, so sometime in the past when Freeze was still a child, and it turns out he's, he's pushing his mother towards the snowman contest again, but in turn, uh, she's in a wheelchair this time because of her, uh, because of her, I assume her injuries from the mm -hmm. last time. And what ends up happening is uh, she says, you know, I forgot the apples. We don't have the apples. And then she suddenly says, listen, I actually already have the apples. See, they're right here in my hand. She holds out her hand and we find out she's carved a part of her hand to make it appear as two red circles symbolizing the apples. Fry sees this and says, I see, mother, gives her a kiss and says, now rest and throws her into a hole in the lake into the ice. And that is the end of the Batman Annual. Alright, Batman Annual number one. I gotta say, I know a lot of people are going to, you know, sort of be upset by the entire new origin of Mr. Freeze. I didn't really find it that, that crazy. The, the, I, the one thing, you know, we, we've, we've come across the Heart of, uh, heart of Ice and things like that in the past, which have really delved into the idea of who Mr. Freeze is and how he came to be. The The one problem that I can see with Mr. Freeze prior to this origin is that everything that he does is because of Nora, but it never actually explains, for instance, why he, you know, why he feels the necessity to be a thief, other than just to be, or or to be a menace to society and kill all these people, other than just to explain that he's trying to get something to help his wife. And quite honestly, that's a huge character flaw, because if your your downfall of, of or your, I guess your, your weakness, is the fact that everything has to do with your wife, as they showed in the movie Batman Robin, all they have to do is take out your wife. Mm -hmm. And then you have no purpose. The reality is, this shows that Fry's was messed up in the head even before, he, you know, he had the the horrible accident happen to him that actually requires him to be in the cold again. You know, he had he was messed up in the head to begin with, 
this also shows that well, Fry uh, Nora was never actually Fry's wife, and he is clearly messed up in the head, and just had this idea that you know she was the epitome of what a woman could be because she was on ice. I'm sure he maybe never even came across this person until he was studying uh, cryogenics and things like that. So, I actually like this origin. Um, I like the the element of uh, him having issues with his mother and actually killing his mother because it shows that you know he is messed up in general. He's not just this guy who's you know out in the world to just you know steal diamonds so that he can because they look like ice and they make and so that he can make money, so that he can feed his research uh, to to heal his wife. Because, honestly, if his wife wasn't around, he wouldn't, there wouldn't be a purpose for him. And at least now, he has a purpose. He despises Bruce Wayne for, you know, basically outing him, and causing this accident, and canceling his research, and causing all of these issues. He has this, you know, hatred for Bruce Wayne. He also now doesn't really have as much... I mean, I'm sure he still will think that Nora is the epitome of what he he needs as far as love goes. But if you think about it, it really is true as far as what they ex- describe. If he's never met her and it's just this person who's been frozen, it really is just comes down to he doesn't actually love her. He likes the... He loves the idea of her. He loves the idea that she's this this attractive woman who's frozen, which is his thing, you know? <laughs> and if she was brought back, she would have no idea who he is. And he would be crushed yet again. And they kind of hinted at that in the animated series, um, but, like, further along with uh, the, the new Batman adventures and things like that, but, I mean, that's just the reality. He has no purpose if his if all he does is everything for his wife. And now that it's not his wife, he can be used a lot more, and the fact that he's messed up in the head explains why he has to go to Arkham Asylum as well. It also explains, you know, why he freezes people just to freeze people, because he's messed up. So, uh, as far as the arc go, I think Jason Fabig did a a really great job. Um, I kind of feel bad, because I think about all those times that he had to fill in or help out David Finch last year with Batman the Dark Knight, and I think to myself how badly we, uh, we, we, did, we, we didn't really do him any favors when he had a fill-in, but I think that was more because we just hated the story. Um, I think he did a great job. I hope that he gets some more work on some more Batman books. Um, overall, I'm going to give this four and a half out of five batterings. <laughs> uh, I, <laughs> the, uh, the snobby, uh, annoying continuity fanboy movie really wants to dislike this issue, but I don't think I, I can. Um, this is interesting. I remember when I first read this, I picked it up at my comic shop, and I was like, holy crap. And I texted, um, I texted Dustin, and I texted Stella, and I was like, you know, I was like, where's Joe's phone number? And Dustin's was like, he doesn't live in the U.S., child ahead. So, like, I couldn't text wow. Joe if I would. <laughs> like, this was really something to read. Uh, this is something, something definitely to kind of, you know, I think Batman, Batman fans would need to really pick this up just to see how they've how Scott Snyder's sort of like really taken really taken the Mr. Freeze origin going back to that animated series episode Heart of Ice and just I think you know in the truest sense of the word twisted it and kind of just made it different and new again um I remember us reading the interview and 
him kind of like going back to that. And I was always, I was really, really like hesitant. But and I was, it was, it was interesting too because he he kind of plays on the sort of same kind of themes from that episode, like the scene where Bruce Wayne says, you know, you know, Victor, shut this down. You know, this is crazy. That was very much like the scene in the in the animated series where uh, I think was his name, um, Boyle. I think it was the the guy who you know shut him, like you know, told him you know what you're doing is illegal and basically shut it down uh, illegally. It was basically that, but you know, Bruce Wayne was in his place. And I was like, what is Snyder doing here? Like, why is because you know they don't say it until the very end that it isn't Freeze's wife, which I thought was very very good. You know, the entire time, it just seems that like. Uh, for some reason, Bruce Wayne is keeping him, keeping him from his wife. Then says, "Actually, she's not your wife." And I thought that was just the way they explained that made a lot of sense and it kind of uh, altered Freeze's character. I'm gonna say maybe for the better because I may have mentioned this before. Uh, Freeze, you know, a lot of times he's been ever since he was sort of revamped in uh, in 1991 or whatever. 1992. Like, you know, the idea of him was that he was very unemotional, but he had all this emotion towards his wife. And they've, and they've adapted that in Batman and Robin and in, in the comics. But in the comics, the thing was that, like, he always he was always portrayed to be kind of like this... He was he, They didn't really move forward with that idea. They kind of just have him kind of be static and kind of be a very angry, pissed-off supervillain who was, you know, kind of... Honestly, I, I, thought, I found really unappealing. The only times I ever liked him was in the cartoon. Here, he's really, really nuts. And he's he's kind of understandably insane. His mania can kind of be seen as a little bit relatable. You know, he's chasing an idea. And it's not really a basic human emotion, but, you know, sort of like almost a fetishization of what he would like to have or own or whatever. And I think that's really cool. I do have some trepidations with it because it does kind of... Because it twists it so so wrongly almost, it does kind of make it more of a cynical uh, sort of view of human emotions. But because it is uh, sort of psychoanalytical, it is really cool, and it is it is sort of Scott Snyder making these these villains really twisted in a way that just doesn't go for like the obvious, which I really like. I agree with Dustin. I thought Jason Fabok's artwork was very good, and I feel bad that we uh, bashed him so heavily in, in, in Dark Knight Volume One. Um, and I thought this was I thought this was a very good comic. Um, I kind of didn't want to like it, but I can't you, you can't deny something when, when it's you know when the quality is right there. Four and a half out of five betterings. Yeah, I also thought that the the art was really fantastic. Miles better than the stuff he was doing in Dark Knight. Um, I wonder if that's because he was trying to copy Finch's style. I mean, they that sounds a bit old because they're quite similar, but I mean, for Box is uh, it's a lot more consistent, and I just think some of the stuff he was doing it's not quite as line heavy as well, and it's just a lot of the stuff was really great in this book. I really like the look of it, and it's so detailed as well. I mean, I'm sure he got quite a lot of time to do this, but even so, it's, you know, like loads of backgrounds and stuff, which you don't tend to see all that much in modern comics, but... So, yeah, I thought the art was really great. Uh, I really like the line about they will readily accept it as an extension of my perceived fetishization of ice, because it kind of challenges that whole idea of a gimmicky villain. Although, at the same time, it, it, he does kind of... Uh, have a lot to do with ice all the way through. I know that it's obviously to do with his power, but it kind of uh, it, it was almost as if he was saying that um, the villains in Gotham they put on a show, which is an interesting concept. But uh, it was slightly contradicted by the fact that that's kind of all he can do anyway, and, and that's what he was doing even when he was escaping from Arkham. He was kind of using 
theatrics and ice and stuff to get out of there. The idea of Nora not being his actual wife is definitely interesting. Um, it kind of... I guess it makes sense. There's a slight air of reboot for reboot's sake around it, but after so many years of... Well, well 20, I guess. <laughs> uh, of just having the same kind of story about he's doing it all for his wife, I can understand why there would need to be a change. It's a shame that it can't be a, ch a gradual change where, you know, more is made out of the character opposed to just going, all right, well, now let's do this different thing for another 20 years before we reboot the character again, which I'm a bit worried is what's mm -hmm. going to happen. Um, yeah, the other problem about it, I think, is by doing that, although there's an, a sense of it because of his obsession for Nora, it kind of takes out the sympathetic, sympathetic character element which is what was so appealing to start with and it kind of just makes him another mad scientist character and especially with him killing his mother at the start that's a, I think we've seen that in nearly every villain like especially modern times and it's such a, an overused thing I think where it's you know oh he was always bad from the start he's a messed up kid I mean it, it's it's almost James Gordon Jr.-ish in, in that it's you know he's obviously a lot more out there than it was with James but it's a similar kind of thing and I think even the character design was a bit similar to the kid in uh, Swamp Thing I know it's you know not quite connected maybe I'm just drawing too many ties to Scott Snyder but it, I, I, I get a bit tired of the fact that you know it's always oh they were always messed up or oh yeah their dad beat them when they were young so they grew up and murdered a bunch of people I think those seems to be the two sort of main things which turn people into a villain it'd be nice to see something even more original than that I totally share Damien's viewpoint on like the quips and trash talk during fighting you know because uh, when Nightwing was fighting Mr. Freeze and they were having their back and forth because I I'd, I'd definitely get a bit bored of those uh, things if, if I wanted to see someone making jokes as they got beaten up I'd probably be reading Spider-Man and uh, overall, I thought it was a really cool issue. It it touched on, but was outside of the Night of Owls, which was refreshing. So it's again, it kind of builds on that event in that it's it's it, it has layers and ties into things, but isn't necessarily just like something that you can go you know just read and then forget about. It's it's got ties to other things, which I think is a a good thing. So four four out of five batterings. Before I go into my review of it, I, I think I just want to touch on what Joe is saying about sort of taking away the sympathy of him and showing that he's messed up from the beginning. And Joe used the word killing his mother. And really what I viewed from that final scene is that actually he was really sympathetic towards his mother's plight. And he would have rather seen her dead than kind of going on in this state of being very confused and almost like cathartic and not knowing what's going on. And I almost saw it as like a euthanasia and a very like loving kind of thing towards his mother because you saw how much he loved her in the beginning and so I, I don't think that was like a violent thing at all but actually an attempt well, that, to sort of save her I guess as a kid he couldn't afford a plane ticket to Switzerland so why, why was she crazy in the first place? I don't understand Be that because she fell through the ice I think that really like messed up her, uh, her brain is that it? alright, never mind well normally when well I'll just say this I'm not an expert when it comes to science. I'm not an expert when it comes science? to uh, being a doctor. But you are? I'm pretty I know for a fact that if you get if your body gets too cold, your nervous system starts to shut down. Which means if she was under the ice for a long period of time, 
Her body could have slowly started to shut down, which means signals were not going to her brain correctly. That could be why she cut a thing into her hand and didn't even realize what she was doing because her her nervous system is all messed up, and she and you know that could also be why she's so confused because mm-hmm. part of her brain works and part of her brain doesn't work. That's my two cents. Yeah, I mean, I that's definitely how I read it, anyways. Um, I I liked this version of Freeze. I also think, uh, well, when you know when Don texts texts you, and it's tough in text and and chatting and things like that because there's no tone implication with it. So when he said it, you, you. Really, <laughs> you couldn't really tell what you know what his thoughts were. And of course, when you hear, oh, his origin has changed, you get a negative kind of feeling from it. But I overall actually enjoyed this. You know, yes, it is different, but I thought it was a good job. Um, I, I I certainly thought that this version of Freeze reflected uh, certain um, metahuman aspects of him, uh, like in the Batman of the Batman of the Batman animated series. So you know, on the WB and everything, because he certainly has powers rather than, you know, always relying on his suit and, you know, a gun and everything. He kind of has some metahuman powers with him. So that was kind of switching it up a little bit. I enjoyed that. It was funny how much Freeze and Penguin actually relate to one another. Uh, I mean, they're getting along well, and you could kind of see, like, oh, wow, this could be potentially... I mean, who wouldn't buy, after this, a Penguin and uh, Penguin and Freeze duo book. I'm giving DC ideas now. I mean, it could no, be no, interesting. No more books, please. It's too much. <laughs> uh, but, you know, if you think about it, they also have this sort of common thread, you know, a tragedy involving a mother. And that was really, this book certainly reminded me of the Pain and Prejudice miniseries. Yes, I wasn't too much of a fan of that, but I, I think that in one issue, we really got at the heart at Freeze and what this character is about. And yes, you have sympathy for him. Yes, you think he's a uh, kooky and crazy guy, but I think it did a good job. I like that this story with Freeze and the Owls is certainly better explained here than the one in Red Hood, because the Red Hood one is just, he just pops up and then goes away, and you wonder why he was in there in the first place. Some details I liked, I liked the heated coils on Batman's gloves. I thought that was pretty chway. Um, (laughs) I liked that Bruce is is more directly tied to Freeze's origin uh, and that Freeze's appearance is much more recent with hints that it obviously happens after R.I.P. because he said, you know, uh, that Bruce had been gone for a while. And I think usually it was like a nameless scientist that sort of puts uh, Nora in storage. And, And now that we directly tie it to Bruce, I think that that's great. What a shocking twist that Nora is not the Nora we knew before. I think that threw everyone for a loop. And, and it's always good when you're going along and you don't see something coming. I think that that is great. Yes, poetic justice that he has his own perfect formula used against him. That was great. The carving was sort of answered for me. I almost wondered if she had been carving it before. Like, not before not knowing that they were going to go on this outing but she was just randomly carving into her hand but I suppose maybe she did find out about this and then decided to carve into her hand but it, it just seemed very strange in the end um yes equally disturbing the ending as only Snyder can really do but just as in you know pain and prejudice I think we we certainly have sympathy for him towards the end I, I kind of saw like a positive 
a positive character flaw with um if you can I guess that's like an uh oxymoron a positive character flaw with freeze rather than a negative one but you do there there were some little details thrown in there that he used to experiment on animals and everything so obviously he's not a perfect uh perfect great guy but i thought it was a great issue yes it was shocking and yes it's a new origin but i think that this one compared to others really worked well 4.5 out of 5 batterings two real quick things i just wanted to mention based off of what Stella said, she she did say the Pain and Prejudice. And I think the difference between the Pain and Prejudice miniseries and this was the Pain and Prejudice series could have probably worked a lot better if it wasn't four or five issues long and it was more contained like this story because this was from the beginning to the end, everything that really happened, like everything explained in the Pain and Prejudice miniseries, this was explained in one just oversized annual and I think that series probably would have done a lot better and the story would have gotten a lot more recognition if it was a lot shorter or more contained than uh, than it actually was the other thing I, I do have to say is the, the, the timing I'm sorry but okay so Freeze was captured by Red Hood earlier during the Red Hood series in that same night and for some reason he got to Arkham Got processed into oh yeah yep and was already talking to a psychiatrist that same night. To me, that just seems a little odd. Was and also, how in the world did Freeze set up a truck to be outside of Arkham all within the same night? Was, was the it same- the same night? Yeah, because it said in the beginning, it said night of the owls, twelve o three a.m. Well, this is the same stupid universe where a former inmate of Arkham can now run Arkham. And le- yeah. less than the yeah, and after being yeah taken hostage by Batman, essentially and punched in the face, he was just walking around like, "What? They're back again!" <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway, Batman Annual Number One gets a total of four and a half out of five batarangs. That is all of our comic book reviews. Let's throw it over to John with Bat Books for Beginners. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of Bat Books for Beginners. I'm your host John and this week we're looking at Bane of the Demon. Get behind me, now. Bane. Cut me down. Who did this to you? Sorry, as Bane. Bane of the Demon was a four-part miniseries that was released between March and June 1998 and was collected in Batman vs. Bane and can be bought for the grand total of $8. This series ties into Batman Contagion and explains some of the plot points in that series, as well as tying into Batman Legacy by explaining how Ra's al Ghul and Bane meet. It was written by Chuck Dixon and has pencils by Graham Nolan and colours by Noel Giddings. We open the comic with Bane returning to Santa Prisca to talk to a blind Jesuit priest about the identity of his father. He is given four options as to who his father could be. A man called Sebastian, a revolutionary. Nort Americano, who was a doctor. A man called the Englishman, who is a mercenary. 
or a man known as the Swiss, who provided money for the revolution. Bain then throws the priest out of the window. He goes in search of the Swiss, who was a member of the Order of St. Dumas. Travelling to several countries, he interrogates a number of people, finally leading him to Singapore and Philippe Jean Ormand. Bain interrogates him, whilst unknown to Bain, the League of Assassins, led by Talia, arrived to steal a book from Philippe. Bain hides from the League before leaping out and attacking. He is beaten up by Talia, and he agrees to return to the League's headquarters. Raz is at the start reluctant to allow him to join, but is impressed by Bane's knowledge of chess and believes him to be useful, and so allows him to stay. We also discover that Raz is searching for something called the Wheel, and a virus called the Apocalypse Virus. Bane discovers a pool and goes swimming in it, only to be attacked by an eel and has to be rescued by Talia. They embrace, and Bane learns more about Raz and his immortality via the Lazarus Pit, and begins to form a plan to use it himself. But not before he and Talia are dispatched to take a page of coordinates from a Cobra headquarters. Bane chases the leader of the Cobra cell into a room, and off-panel learns more about Raz al Ghul. He also retrieves the page, giving it to Talia. They then return to the League, and Bane interrogates Sharam, the League's librarian, who shows and explains how the Lazarus Pit works, and he, Bane, vows it will be his to use instead of Raz. Talia, meanwhile, is offered Bane as a partner by Raz, but rejects him, saying that there is nothing but some mindless predator inside. And when Bane approaches her, she reacts coldly to him, and demands that Bane dies. Raz agrees and locks him into a cell with, that floods with water every time the tide rises. While Bane is escaping, Raz al Ghul receives a report into Bane announcing who Bane's father is. Talia is in her room when she is attacked by Bane, who reveals he knew everything that she said about him, as he knows several different languages and could understand what she was saying to her father. However, whilst he was able to beat Talia, Bane himself is easily defeated by Raz only keeps him alive as Bane has memorised several key pages of the text that Raz seeks and then destroyed them. Raz declares that he has a mind as great as Batman and he will make a great partner for Talia. We then cut to the three of them in the desert searching for what we discover is called the Wheel of Plagues. And as Raz monologues in the sandstorm we see the shadows of Batman, Nightwing and Robin. Bane, I'm pleased you remember me, Mr. Wayne. I really enjoyed this mini-series. The backstory of Bane was fascinating, and I loved learning more about him and the hunt for his father. I learned a lot as well about what motivates him, and it was nice to see Bane not portrayed as a lumbering hulk, but as a deeply intelligent person who often plans ahead and can even take on Raz al Ghul himself. Talia as well is portrayed in a very interesting light. She was one minute sweet and deeply interested in Bane, and at the drop of a hat, cold and demanding his death. Something her character would do, it makes sense. She's the head of a massive crime organisation, so she'd be used to getting her every whim seen to, and so would logically act like a spoiled brat, something that we later see again in Damien. She's able to handle herself well in the fights, 
beating Bane easily, and only getting beaten up by him when he catches her by surprise. The writing, as per usual, from Chuck Dixon was excellent, and he showed his ability to get under the skin of every character that he writes, portraying them in a strong and realistic manner. The art was fantastic as well, with easy-to-follow action, and the characters in proportion to each other. Bane himself was drawn very well, and it can be hard to get him right, often portrayed by some artists who make him far too big and simply just massive. Overall, this was a great little mini-series. I would give this 4 out of 5 Batarangs, and highly recommend that you pick it up. So, next episode, we begin the hardest years of Batman's life, as we begin the slow spiral to no man's land, and we kick this off with Contagion. So, I've been John, thanks once again for listening, I appreciate it, and I'll hand you back over to Dustin and the guys. Batman's my pal. He can be a major jerk, but you gotta love him, and nobody tries to fillet him when I'm around. Alright, so that was Bat Books for Beginners. Make sure you are checking out not only the website for the list of all the, the upcoming episodes over on the forums, but also check out the feed for Bat Books for Beginners with all of the episodes from Nick and John going back from the very beginning of Batman's history to the very current episode that John has produced. So with that, that is going to get us into our DCU Spotlight. So first up, Don will give us his suggestion. This month, I will recommend uh, Justice League number 9. Justice League, I've kind of dipped in and out of this series personally. I mean, I don't think it's awful or anything, but it's, it's marketed as DC's flagship title, and I will admit that uh, part of that is because of Jim Lee's artwork. Part of it is because you know Jeff John's writing, of course. But after the first arc uh, wrapped up, it kind of lost interest for me rather immediately, but now that Jim Lee's back... It coincidentally has gotten good again, but that's not just because why I'm, why I'm um, recommending it. Um, a lot of people, you know, are kind of if you're on the new Justice League, you know, how they're being portrayed. But this issue, I think, is a lot more like if you're if you know what you like in the Justice League, then you can find it here. You have them kind of fighting aliens, you know, the kind of um, introducing new characters. You have like the world's finest team up with Batman and Superman, a little bit more familiar than. Um, what you might think, or you know, it's or it's interpreted in a new way because they're both still rather young, and also the backup includes uh, Shazam. I guess it's what we're calling him now. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, his development, and it is in some interesting stuff. For uh, so uh, uh, again, check out Justice League number nine for this week or this month rather. I will be recommending once again Frankenstein, Agent of Shade. I know I did last month, but that was just for the title in general, whereas. If you are reading uh, Animal Man and Swamp Thing, you really should pick up issue number nine of Frankenstein, Agent of Shade. It really was a fantastic issue tying into the whole The Rot storyline, which is taking place there. Obviously, it's it's not necessary, but I, I really enjoyed it and seeing the ties to that series and seeing Frankenstein's perspective on it and how Shade were dealing with it. It really was a fantastic issue. Uh, written by Jeff Lemire with art by Alberto Ponticelli once again um, like I said I'm not sure how longer, how much longer Jeff Lemire is staying on the book but I really do recommend this issue if none of the others and I am I, yeah shocker Joe said this at the beginning when I said what I was going to recommend World's Finest 
Uh, currently, it's being. I, I I imagine this is going to be for a long haul. Uh, Paul Levitz is the writer, and George Perez is penciling, and we're following Karen as Power Girl, and uh, Helena Wayne um, as Huntress, and on Earth Two, they were Kara's. Supergirl and Robin, <laughs> which is it's just funny to think of Funtress as Robin, I guess. But basically, there is attack and attack on on Earth Two by Darkseid, and there was sort of a boom tube explosion, and they were ported here to Earth One. And Karen had been working with Michael Holt, but she got some sort of investments and and technology and companies on her own. And in in the first issue, I know there's been other issues, but there's one of her companies in Japan is destroyed, and someone specifically targets a quantum tunneler, which reminds me way back in Batman Family that I just covered. Basically, there's a, tr- a transport between JSA on one Earth and JSA on another, and that's how the Huntress first came to our our Earth, if I were to call it that. And so this is her plan is to use this quantum tunnel to sort of get back to Earth 2. And so it's going to be them uh, f- crime fighting in their current Earth, but trying to get back home. And in the meanwhile, we go back and forth um, and kind of see what happened when they first arrived, which was five years ago, and what's happening now. So there's always... Uh, a little flash, a backflash of what had happened, how did they get to this point, and then the current. And so it's just it's just fun. It's world's finest. It really is. And it, it's great to see Huntress still and Power Girl, and hopefully the, the characterizations stay top-notch. All right, and so for my suggestion, I will be suggesting Resurrection Man number 9. Uh, this is actually... There's a little bit of a crossover between Suicide Squad and Resurrection Man this month, and that's why I picked up Resurrection Man. Um, the issue is written by Dad, Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning, with art by Jesus Saiz and Andres Ginaldo. And um, the issue is essentially the Suicide Squad's been going after Mitch Shelley for a couple issues within uh, uh, Resurrection Man, but also. Um, in Suicide Squad, they've dealt with him too, but the issue starts off with Resurrection Man being dead and Deadshot being there uh, trying to apprehend him, and the body doubles are from a rival organization who's also trying to get Mitch Shelley, and they're told by their director to kill Deadshot, anybody who gets in the way, because they need to get back Mitch Shelley, who was part of an experiment that that organization did. Um, Meanwhile, Resurrection Man, he comes back to life and basically turns himself into what's very similar to the Terminator from Terminator 2, um, where he's like the liquid metal form, and he starts uh, beating the hell out of everybody, actually encases Deadshot's body and controls him to go back to find uh, his, his, this, this girl that he, f- he feels he needs to trust, and she's being, she's being held by Amanda Waller. Ultimately, um, you know, Joe has uh, recommended this book in the past. This is a very interesting character. Essentially, I think the the idea of the character is very cool. I don't know a whole lot about Resurrection Man, you know, besides what what's happened since the New Fifty Two has happened. I've read uh, issues sporadically because they seem to cross over a lot with other books that I read, like Suicide Squad. Um, in what at one point, Resurrection Man was in Gotham City and Arkham Asylum. 
So it does cross over with the number of titles that I read, so I tend to you know pick it up every once in a while when it's crossing over into other things that I read. It's an interesting book. Give it a shot. He's definitely an interesting character, and I think the next issue is really going to be a jumping-on point for a lot of people because I'm pretty sure that uh, with this issue, it really wraps up the arc. But issue 10 is going to be, I, I assume, a good jumping-on point for people out there who are interested in the character. All right. So that is our DCU Spotlight. So with that, let's go over what we'll be covering next time on the podcast. Not nearly as many titles. Uh, We will be covering Batwing number 10, Detective Comics number 10, Batgirl number 10, Batman number 10, Batman and Robin number 10. Total of five issues next time, so probably a much shorter podcast. Uh, So that means we could have a discussion. Ooh! uh, Which... I, I think it would be great if we actually did have a discussion, and I'd love to have a discussion based off of a fan question. So email us at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net with a possible discussion or uh, question that you might have that we could use as a discussion for the upcoming podcast. Or you could always leave us uh, a, a comment or question on the actual website or the forums or Facebook or Twitter as well, and we, we could always keep those and we could always check those and see what we get as far as uh, discussion points or questions to talk about in the next episode. And if you make it about Young Justice, we'll love you forever. But Stella will love you forever. And you so will Don! Alright, so with that, that is everything for this episode. I want to remind everybody to head over to the website to check out all the news related to not only everything related to the comics, but also movies, TV, merchandise, video game, and general news. Uh, there's tons of things going on with The Dark Knight Rises, which is only is less than two months away now. Um, so check out the website for all the news related to the upcoming movie. In addition to that, be sure to check out the forums. If you become a member, please send us an email letting us know that you need your account activated, and we'll be, we will be sure to activate your account promptly. Um, and you can chat with other Bat fans. In addition to that, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. For all the latest news and videos from the Batman universe, you can always leave us a review on iTunes, and of course, you can leave us a pot. Uh, and of course, you can email us at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net. Be sure to check out the website for some of our other podcast feeds as well. Not only is the normal podcast has a new episode as this at the same time, but we also have the award show, which, if not posted by now, will be posted very shortly after this episode posts as well. In addition to that, we also have some interviews that uh, are also lined up, so be, be, be sure to be checking out the interviews feed as well as the website. So tons of things going on in the Batman universe because, well, it's Batman prime time, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So with that, that's everything. This is Dustin. This is Donovan. <laughs> this is Joe, and I want to go. Felicam DM Natalem. This is Stella. You've been listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. We'll see you guys next time. We certainly will. Goodbye. This is Donovan. What? <laughs> Please, God, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I don't even know what that's from. Oh, you oh, should. Really? You call yourself a Batman fan? You are not. Burritos, really? Yes. Why don't you say waffles? Because that's not what it's. It's from Super Best Friends Forever. You see Nation Block? Come on, really? man. Really? <laughs> Come on. Yeah, that has one to go in it. First of all, I just have to tell you, it. I almost never see the DC Nation shorts because... My stupid DVR does not... I can't set up a season pass for the shows that are on there. And the only way I can record them is if I go on the week that the show's on, go to the guide, file through until Saturday, and actually set up manual recordings for those shows. So, almost every single week that I remember, I always record Green Lantern Animated Series and Young Justice, regardless of whether it's a new one or an old one, because I know there's going to be something DC Nation in there. So that's not being released to yet, but the internet is a buzz to who it could potentially be. Yeah, it's been Alan they Scott. Have said who it is. Oh, who? Alan Scott. I don't even know who that is. Golden Age Green Lantern. Lantern. Is is it, oh so he's in the uh... Earth two. Earth two. Oh, okay. And there was an interview that was done. What day was it? There was an interview that was done with James Robinson who said, Hey, guess what? Alan Scott's not the only gay character I'm going to have in Earth 2. There's other characters too. I'm just having, uh, I'm not going to tell anybody yet. It's a game again. Someone asked about Wally West and was laughed at the convention room. <laughs> oh, you see this? By the people in the panel? Uh, well, pretty much, yeah. God. <laughs> Hello everyone and welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 93. I'm your host, Dustin, and today we have with us... Hi, this is Donovan. I am Joe. Let's go T.P. Lex Luthor. I'm Stella. What the hell is that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> See, it's going to be one of those nights already, I can tell. What is that, a call out to just... some person? I don't even know what that is. I just heard something. T.P. T.P. Lex Luthor? What the hell is that? Yeah, I can't breathe. You should have just let us say burritos. No, it's I'm sitting here in burritos. It's the episode of Super Best Friends Forever. Oh, God. You're killing it, man. <laughs> 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 Hello everyone and welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 93. I'm your host Dustin, and today we have with us... This is Donovan. This is Joe. And this is... <laughs> Composure. And this is Stella. I just want everyone to know that this, oh, is Stella. Oh. this is Stella. Yeah. This is Stella doing this. She's the one who's always not doing this, as she always says. But she's the one doing this. Okay. Stan arms the trigger and asks for boom boom. You can do this. I know. Okay. <laughs> yes. Alright, so next up on... Uh, well, next up... Joe, you're going to talk about Kapow. What? Oh, that's right. Never mind. He went he there. there yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just okay. I'm gonna make Stella cry before this is over. So for this interview, I'll read for Comic Resources, and Don will read for Judd Winning. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just messing with you. All right. Um, I really don't know what I'm saying. I'm going delirious. <laughs> it's all those drugs. Wah wah. It's all those M and M's. 
but actually threw the knife at the same time that we Ignore that. I think he was cleaning his microphone. Did you not like what Stella was saying? <laughs> no, I don't know what happened. What was the last thing I said? The last thing I heard was... Ray Bronze Age. This happened in Batman and Robin. This happened in Batman and Robin. <laughs> Sorry, I was getting fat. angry. No, no, it's fine, because I agree with what you're saying. 